trying to score from the plug today. I sure could use a shot. Zannies are helping, but I need more. Guess I'll smoke some pot. I'm about to go insane. Sometimes I need to go where everybody does cocaine. And we always find a vein. I want to fix and do some blow. The troubles will go away. I want to be where everybody does cocaine. You shoot your dope, I'll smoke some crack. Junkies are all the same. I want to be where everybody does cocaine. episode of Dopey is brought to you by our very good friends at Oral Recovery. Is Oral Recovery the greatest treatment center in the universe? It quite possibly could be. It was created by Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob, with the noble mission of treating drug addiction and alcoholism by using connection and compassion rather than control. That's a seriously good intention right there. Then, Couple that with their staff having so many decades of experience in treating co-occurring mental health disorders, fucking SMI, you know, all the co-occurring mental health disorders. There's a lot of them. Not to mention the fact that everybody that we know that goes to Oro just has the best experience, and they just say such great things. We hear that the detox is as comfortable as a detox can be. We hear the amenities are just beautiful with things like sound bath meditation, surfing, equine therapy, and who can forget about the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge? Not me. Seriously, if I could pick to go anywhere to treatment, kind of if I could pick to go anywhere, I'd either go to my dad's lake house or I'd go to fucking Oro. Check them out at ororecovery.com. It's an amazing, amazing place. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our very good friends at Sober Buddy. What is Sober Buddy? Sober Buddy is an app on your phone. It has challenges to help you stay sober. Sober Buddy is also a platform, a social media platform, where you can go on there and connect with other people who are in recovery and help each other. Sober Buddy is also a series of Zooms. We do 11 Zooms a week, and I say we because even I 
do a Sober Buddy Zoom every Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Join Sober Buddy at YourSoberBuddy.com or on the App Store or the Google Play Store. But besides all of those things that I said, the most important thing about Sober Buddy is we are a community. We love each other in the community, we help each other, and we grow together. Sometimes we shrink, and then we help the other person grow again. So if you're looking for a really amazing sober community app, platform, all that shit, check out Sober Buddy. It's reasonably priced and incredibly effective. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our very good friends at Evolution Accounting and Promotions. Are you a business owner? Are you intimidated by doing your taxes? Then let Evolution Accounting and Consulting help. They are run by a fucking crackhead in long-term recovery who wants to help you guys with your bookkeeping, your taxes, all that stuff so you can pursue your passion and your creativity around your business. Check them out at evolution-accounting.com. And use the code DOPEY and get special discounts. Hello and welcome to DOPEY, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. My name is Dave. Uh, it's another dopey episode. It's a very, very, very important dopey episode. We have coming back to the show the one and only Jessa Reed, and and Jessa, Jessa came on back in the day with Chris. She came back one other time. She is a sought after dopey guest. She is a beloved dopey OG or dopey original dope. However, you guys want to classify her it's an honor and a thrill to have her back and she does not disappoint everyone in this house that i'm in is going to bed but they're doing it so fucking slowly i'm losing my mind trying to finish this stupid show first of all dopeycon tickets are on sale they are on sale i think there are 45 days to to buy tickets so get buying they are only on sale on Patreon, and that should be an incentive to join Patreon. You can join Patreon for as low as $1 a month or as high as however much you want to give. The tiers are like this. You know, one or two bucks, you get nothing. You just get the content. But the content is very valuable. Lots of Just For Today videos, bonus interviews. I just put up an extra bonus interview this week. Fucking five bucks, you get entry to the Dopey Patreon Zoom, as well as entry to the Dopey Patreon Sober Buddy Zoom that we do every week on Wednesday at 9 a.m., which has actually been pretty fun and uh, seemingly helpful. It's been great. For the uh, $10 tier, you get the pack of stickers plus entry to the Zooms. For the $15 tier, you get socks and stickers and entry to the Zooms. And for the new Dopey Diamond Club, of which I think there is just a few members, you get an exclusive Dopey beanie, the socks, the stickers, and the Zooms. And most importantly, you get the chance to uh, buy tickets for DopeyCon. So please sign up to Patreon. If you love the show, if you don't have much to give, don't give much. But sign up for Patreon because it helps to make Dopey 
better. In two weeks, I'm going out to Park City, Utah to be part of the Park City Song Summit. I mentioned it last week. I'm moderating a talk with uh, DMC from Run DMC and Chuck D from Public Enemy, and I'm doing a talk with Grandmaster Flash about uh, the first 50 years of hip-hop, the 50th anniversary of hip-hop. And I'm a little bit daunted, but I'm, I'm getting prepared. There's so much other good stuff at Park City Song Summit. Ben Anderson, who's an alcoholic in recovery, the founder, the creator of the Park City Song Summit, will be on the show after Jessa laying out all the details. So stick around to listen to more about Park City Song Summit or go to parkcitysongsummit.com and, uh, and buy tickets. Come out. If you're in Utah, it's really cheap to go to the shows. And if you want to get a package together, go to parkcitysongsummit.com. Please come out, and if you're there, please uh, come say hey. I would love that. And in other news, my friend and former sponsor and dopey guest, DJ DB, has a book, uh, has a Kickstarter for a photography book all about punk rock in London. He was a fucking horrible drug addict, a school dropout in London, taking pictures and he shot the Sex Pistols, the Ramones, a bunch of, I think, some Susie and the Banshees, maybe some Velvet Underground. He lost the film. Recently, he went back to London after his mom died, and he found the film. So he has this Kickstarter uh, to put it all together. It's called Crash Bang Pictures from a Punk. It's a large format photo book. The Kickstarter is, um, I'll put the link in the in the show notes, but... It's it's kickstarter.com slash project slash blurring book slash crash dash bang dash pictures dash from dash a dash punk. So check that out. DJ DB is a great friend of mine and the shows and we love punk rock photography and his is fucking great. I promised I would mention DB's book and it looks like a really good book. So I'm happy I did. I got an email. I want to read it. It says, hey, Dave. I've been listening to the podcast for a few months now, and I love everything about it. I talk to anyone that will listen. Dopey has helped me heal in ways I never expected. I have a long history of relationship trauma involving drug use. I started listening after the end of an on-again, off-again relationship with an actively using alcoholic cocaine addict. Listening to Dopey has been a non-threatening way to face some of my own stories and feelings and to forgive myself and others. Anyway, a dopey story for you. I was 17 years old the first time I did drugs. I smoked weed with my boyfriend, who I started dating after he got out of a two-year stay at a rehab high school he was sent to after a semi-attempt at killing his dad. Whoa. I got stoned off my ass with just two hits of a joint. I saw faces and tree bark. I was paranoid about being found out. Time stretched out so I could experience every nanosecond like it was a full minute. We hid down a hill across from my house, ducking when my dad came home for lunch just in case he looked out trying to find me. We would have been completely visible to him, but of course it seemed like a completely brilliant idea at the time. My boyfriend's parents went on vacation without him that summer, and we decided to do shrooms while they were gone. He gave me way more than he should have, and I trusted him because he was a pro-drug user and I'm an idiot. One of his friends came over and we sat outside by the pool. I laid on the ground in my own world, seeing shapes and structures in the branches of the trees. I was aware of them talking in the background and was confused by how 
they could be having such a normal conversation while I was completely unable to move my body, my mind wandering another to another dimension. They played familiar music, Modest Mouse, to get me to come back to a shared experience. I was getting sick of the feeling and wished I could close one eyes and see the world through my high, close the other and see the world sober. My boyfriend said eating would help ease the high and gave me a glass of chocolate milk. <laughs> Turns out the milk was spoiled enough to be really damn obvious to someone that wasn't high, and I puked a lot. It sucked, but it definitely eased the high. Then because my family always seemed to know when one of us was a little untethered from the rest, my sister my sister called me to tell me a story about a guy she met at Radio Shack and planned to go on a date with, and my mom called me to tell me it was time to come home. I paced the living room, still high but coming down, trying to be as normal as possible. I'm still not sure she knew I was high. I sobered up enough to drive and face my parents and went home, and pretty sure... Pretty sure I would never do shrooms again. Of course, my boyfriend and I went on to do tons more drugs together. I was a straight-A student with a normal, middle-class family, so no one really noticed me walking the line I was walking. I watched Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas while high off my ass on painkillers after surgery, spring break of my senior year of high school. I don't remember much of that week. Beyond taking pills every few hours around the clock, despite not being in any pain, watching horror movies and walking up high and waking up high with fear and loathing playing, then passing right back out. I stole pills from my dad after he had a vasectomy when I ran out of my own. In college, I take the Ambien my boyfriend gave me early in the night and stayed up late watching Intervention. He got into Coke when we were together, then heroin. After we split up, I lost my easy access to drugs when we broke up and I quit using after I'd done the little bit of weed and pills he gave me to get me through the breakup. I'd felt the blissful warmth of getting high and kept it in the back of my mind that I had to be careful. We went our separate ways and years later he got married, had a baby, had stretches of clean time. Meanwhile, I was single, no kids, drinking a bottle of wine every night and taking edibles in an unsuccessful effort to manage my drinking. I got sober October 1st, 2021. He died of an overdose in October 2021. There's no good ending to so many of our stories. Some of them just end. Stay strong, dopey nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. And that is from Annie. And, um... Yeah, spoiled spoiled chocolate milk while you're tripping sounds like extremely bad, but funny. You know, spoiled chocolate milk. Spoiled milk is just so horrible that it's funny. And I'm very, very sorry about your ex, and I'm very, very happy that you got sober, and I'm glad you like the show, and you win free dopey socks. And we are short on great dopey emails and voicemails. So if you're holding on to some really, really classic shit that you know the dopey nation needs to hear like you're putting grapes in your asshole or uh you know acid in your eyes or you know the deal if you have a good dopey story and you've been too shy to share it don't be too shy send in an email or a voicemail to dopeypodcast at gmail.com and i also just need to say that this episode of dopey is brought to you by better help do you ever feel uncertain in your life? 
I feel uncertain all the time. I just killed myself trying to figure out which email to read or which voicemail to play. Uncertainty is my middle name. But what helps me with uncertainty is talking about my myself and my problems and my fears. When I share my fears with someone else, my fears get cut by a lot. People say when you share your secrets, you cut your secrets in half. Maybe it's a half. Maybe it's to two-thirds. Who knows? But when you share your secrets and your life with a professional who knows how to help you, it helps even more. Whether you're dealing with decisions around careers, relationships, or anything else, therapy helps you stay connected to what you really want while you navigate life so you can move forward with confidence and excitement. Trusting yourself to make decisions that align with your values is like anything. The more you practice it, the easier it gets. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash DopeyPodcast today to get 10% off the first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash DopeyPodcast. It can help you. If you want help, get that 10% from BetterHelp. Wow, that better the BetterHelp ad really fires me up. I'm super fired up that Jessa came back. I'm super fired up for DopeyCon. There's a chance Jessa comes to DopeyCon. There's a lot of exciting DopeyCon shit happening. We do a big DopeyCon Q&A with my dad on Patreon that comes out today, the same day the show comes out, which is very exciting. And one of the sponsors for DopeyCon is the Phoenix. And the Phoenix is just this incredible free app, 100% free app designed to help addicts and alcoholics by investing in their ability to have fun. Are you an alcoholic or an addict with 48 hours of clean and sober time or more? If so, you are eligible to sign up with the Phoenix and go have fun. They have hikes. They do CrossFit classes. They run pickleball leagues. They do art shows. We're going to be putting together some storytelling shows. They're at concerts thephoenix.org check it out thephoenix.org slash dopey even better the phoenix will be at DopeyCon. will you let us know if you're coming please send in an email to dopeypodcast at gmail.com and uh here's jessa reed dopey nation the heavens have opened up and jessa reed is back. Welcome back to the show, Jessa. Oh, I don't know about the heavens. Purgatory has exploded. Has, pur- <laughs> purgatory has uh, has opened a little tiny gate, and I have crawled out. Heaven feels like uh, the stakes are high. Well, the heavens are not necessarily heaven. That's well. That's it's that's a, a sky. That's you know, a, that's it's a, a cloud. Is it weird how much Dopey loves you? Yeah. It fucks you up. You don't like yeah. that. You don't no, like it that I'm not, much. You're I, not into that's that. always weird. When I'm like, well, yeah, you give me that suspicious look. You love. don't know me. I don't. But that's enough. Isn't that enough? Yeah. I you know, I what I, I experienced something in my 2018, 2019 
barely into 2020 talking publicly thing, I didn't like it. I like it. I like making art. I like sharing it with people. I love to hear that it affected people or impacted people, but it created, have you ever heard of audience capture? Tell me. I just, I'm going to butcher it. I have a lot I of just, questions, but yeah, I start just with saw, audience It's like one capture. of these things where I saw a TikTok a week and a half ago and I'm diagnosing myself with it. I might be butchering it, but I think audience capture, for me, what it was is, you know, at first when I was like podcasting and stuff, you're just podcasting into the void. You don't think anyone's going to hear it. And then Methy came out and I'm just telling my stories on podcasts. And the next thing you know, people I haven't talked to in 20 years are listening to the podcast. That's and always like, weird. I told a story about them. You know, I never use anyone's names, but people are like. Except Tom. Tom and the Owl story. Huh? Tom and the Owl story. Well, His name's not really Tom. His name's not really Tom. I had learned my lesson by then. Oh, my God. I was so attached to him as Tom. I did an entire podcast about getting molested and then didn't bleep out the, wow. the other victim's name. And I did I did go back and bleep that out before we released it. But um, I think you look really good in the void. You're lit. And then there's really? this void of blackness yeah, behind you. Yeah, that's nice. You. I'm just, I'm slowly trying to. You, my dad bought the cheapest chairs I like you it. could buy. They break. They, oh, okay. You're going to break, break it. it. <laughs> and I would, I would love it if you broke his chair on the show. Because he's telling me, he's like, David, don't move around on the chairs. I can. Yeah. He says I can tighten them. <laughs> you know, they're really not good yeah. chairs. My dad yeah, is suspect. With That's this a very kind of dad thing. So don't lean back on the back. I legs. want you to break the chair. So okay, go go bananas. Go but you were so like audience capture. Well, now I'm afraid that I don't know what audience capture means. So here's what happened to me. You make things that people like it, and then they get a little. This is more podcasting than comedy. They get a little successful, and then. After a while, you realize that like each one of these people who, who likes you or likes what you've put out has created a version of you. Mm. And I don't think I was ever comfortable with that. I never, was, I never found a way to be comfortable with being misunderstood or really being perceived. You know, that's like addict shit. And the more people listened and especially people liking it, the more I felt like, well, I can't, I can't live up to that. And so it started to create this anxiety pressure yeah and then there were people who didn't like it and then there were people who had thoughts and feelings especially once i started openly talking about spirituality which was or consciousness i guess i would say as spirituality feels but um consciousness it, spirituality consciousness that was like starting to talk about that stuff publicly was a i think really important for me in my authenticity journey because it's one of these things where I think I was always kind of trying to control, to stay safe, control everyone's perception of me in my life, which is why I was kind of living a double life where I, you know, that's kind of how I saw the world or it's definitely how I saw the world and how I lived my life. But then I, I was always gauging whether or not people, it's the same thing with like drug stories. You're not necessarily letting people know that you drank your pee unless you've really figured out whether or not they're cool, you know? Explain it. What do you mean? How do we know? You don't do that. Cool? Well, I think with my my perception of, of our audience is when Chris was alive, I could be the bad guy, right? And I get a lot of negative stuff. And when he died, I needed to be the good guy and the bad guy. Mm -hmm. And I always saw the audience as terrariums of spiders. And one day the covers were going to come off and the spiders were going to leave the terrarium and kill me. 
Oh, okay, yeah. That, that. You can relate to that. Yeah. You know, and, 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 I, and, and every once in a while you find a spider someplace you don't want it to be. You know, and, they're, and they know you and they don't like you. Yeah. And, and they know you more, more than you want to admit that they actually know you and they don't like you. And then I don't like that. What does it say about me? And yeah. I try to color in the lines all the time to prevent people hearing really the horrible stuff that I actually think and feel. Because I don't want them to really know how bad... How I, bad I am. They're exactly. going to find out how bad I am. I know. There's too many of them yes. that know who I am. There's too many hours of us talking. Yeah. They have to put it out. together and they'll know. Yeah. And I always thought I was protecting myself. This is going to sound contradicting what I just said, but, you know, I lost my teeth in my early 20s. I'm going to find a way to bring this back, but maybe not. So I lost my teeth in my early 20s and then lived my entire 20s without teeth. And you learn things like... I'll be the one that makes all the jokes about the teeth and I'm going to make all the good jokes. And then if you try to make fun of my teeth, which I'm actually like insecure about, obviously I'm a, a 25 year old without teeth. Then you're just going to look like a hack because I already made all the jokes. I'll that's put like that the, that's the Eminem and eight mile strategy. Yeah. I will talk shit about myself, myself. So you can't. So you can't do that. So there's this like kind of faux vulnerability thing that I used to do where I would let you know all of my secrets to prevent you from ever finding my secrets kind of stuff, you know? So there's like, obviously that- Protection through vulnerability. It was protection through vulnerability, I guess. It's probably like straight up manipulation, really. Right, it all, it does everything. I found out I was a raging people pleaser and then you find out that people pleasing is just manipulation. It's amazing. People pleasing is just trying to manage the experience of others to stay safe. And manipulation, I don't know, it's like, we're all just little kids trying to stay safe. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, yeah, manipulation's a loaded word. You know what I mean. Though. Yeah, no. Uh, and, and I think you've been through it because, like, you've been through the mill. You've been through the ringer. Yeah. Fucking, you were a very loved, beloved guest, and your consciousness exploration, your Mormon and the meth head, fucking, whatchamacallit, uh, soberish, Awakening OD, like, no, I mean, like, it's a lot of shows and, and your fan base is a real, like, culty fan base. And, like, we have a bunch of really great people that help me make the show. And, and two women who work with me, our, our editor, Amelia, like, loves you. Uh, our associate Hi, producer, Amelia. producer Claire, loves you. And it's like, and, and our audience always like we you know you get bored on social media so you say who did you like on the show so they can respond right and you are always quickly in that world and, and we we would stay in touch here and there when you were in New York you'd come and one time which was nice and here you are again <laughs> and and actually I don't know if we even talked about this we did this first show it was me and Chris were sitting in there and we were on the phone with you yeah and we laughed our asses off and then the second time. We did it on the phone and at the end of the conversation or, or I think I told you Chris died or, or at some point and you started crying and then at the end you said, please don't use that. Yeah, I think if I remember correctly, at the beginning of the call, you said, um, Chris died, by the way, so it's just going to be me. And then I I right. like fell apart right. for 15 minutes yeah. trying to Deal talk. With it. And then at the end, I was like, yeah, I'm going to go process. <laughs> Maybe shoot an email. <laughs> Um, yeah, so then, yeah, and thank you for not releasing that, because that was... Um, no, that's just for the really high-tier Patreons. Yeah. <laughs> so no, nobody's ever heard it. 
Yeah. Wow. What? And that was all. And then I came out here and and did the show at least once after mm-hmm. that. And then you know the oh, whole world changed. The world changed. But I'm always watching you, and I'm like, what's Jessica gonna do? You got into a relationship. Mm-hmm. You're fucking. You got your kids. You're traveling. And then Lyme's disease, right? Yeah. Yeah, I got it, that all happened early uh, 2020. Then I moved to Tennessee to because I was in L.A. I fell in love at the end of January. And then when the lockdown started, I was like, well, I don't want to stay here and get COVID. So I went to Nashville to avoid COVID and immediately got Lyme disease. Did um, they find the tick? I found the tick during a live stream. So it's funny. I oh have I have the video of this like flailing experience where I found it on my head. But I didn't, my uh, partner, he's been bit a million times. They don't, he never gets sick from it. And so he was like, it's not a big deal. You know, I've been bit a million times. And I lived in like Delaware, you know, Pennsylvania area. And in that area, you get bit by a tick, it's like one out of eight times. It's going to be Lyme, you know, but different regions is different. And it was the pandemic. It was the height of craziness. This is like April. I was already kind of unhinged i think like most of us were and so i just didn't do anything about it it was like near impossible to even get into like everything was closed at the time and so i didn't think anything of it and then as the symptoms started pretty immediately so something really weird about it you don't it doesn't look like what you think it's going to look like what was it like um i think the first symptom was my back going out which i thought was a pinched nerve but it was actually just like extreme spasms and the main symptom was brain fog. And so when you have brain fog for the first time, you don't know it's what's happening. Which is also a big COVID symptom. Too. Also a big COVID symptom. Also a big symptom of the entire world shutting down suddenly. And I wasn't in my own environment. I was at somebody else's house. There New was state. stress and personal stuff going on around that. I was, you know, I have this thing that I've learned about myself where when uh, chaos erupts, I feel like I'm the one who needs to have an, a plan and have my shit together. And then also I kind of, you know, I was, I was, I had a consciousness podcast. So then I also was kind of doing this like, okay, I, you know, performing leaning a little in, bit. Leaning into it. Yeah. Just like I, okay, well, I knew I said something like this was going to come. So now I have to have a plan. I didn't really check in with my body, you know, and then the food was, you know, I have to eat pretty clean, but this is food was like a spin the wheel and see what you get. You go to the grocery store and it's like, okay, well, we got beef jerky and a can of corn, you know, right, it's right, so right. fucking weird. So if I'd have been in my own apartment in my own environment and my own thing, I think I pretty quickly would have been like, something's off, but something was like already off before I got bit. So And then there was, by July, I just was cracking jokes about how I was just like laying, where I'm usually kind of a busy person. I was just like, I never stop laying down. And um, thankfully, I got a form of strep that is horse strep. Wow. (laughs) I fucking caught an animal virus on top of it and went to the doctor. We both had at the same time, my boyfriend and I went to the urgent care, ruled out COVID, and then he got better, I didn't. And then something popped up on social media and I had 16 Lyme symptoms by that point. Cause by that point I was having like eye twitches and like joint pain and all kinds of shit. So I get out of Nashville 
I go rent a house in Arizona and I take the antibiotics and I think I'm fine. And then I have this like flowers for Algernon two weeks where I'm just like, I'm cured. Oh my God. I felt like I came at this fog was crazy. Flowers and for Algernon is just the best book ever. It's just, it's really the only thing I ever paid attention to in school. I think we me read. too. It's just, and I knew that that was going to be an allegory and it has been an allegory for so many things in my life. But this was flowers for Algernon on repeat for about 18 months. I got better and then it's kicked back in and I tried to take some herbal stuff. I got sicker. I, so I got rid of the house in Arizona, went back to Nashville where I'd have some support and then just descended into what I guess two of the worst things that have ever the hardest, I guess I'll say, because I think I'm grateful for everything difficult I've ever experienced. But in the moment, I've never been that I've never been that low in my life. Like, I think the day I realized that happiness was an inside job, I was on drugs, but had no drugs. Like just that realization where tonight I'm sleeping at the bus stop, you know, those nights where it's like, oh, I ran out of, I ran out of couches. You know, I ran out of people who find me interesting. I didn't have a quarter to put in a phone. And if I did, I didn't have anyone to call. I didn't have cigarettes. I was about to run out of, uh, or I was out of meth and I was about to run out of gas, which means I'm going to fall asleep here and anything could happen to me. And something did. And I remember just sitting at this bus stop with nothing, like nothing, no one who cared about me, no family, no nothing. And just thought, hmm, I'm still kind of fine though. And I think in that moment, I realized that like contentment was an inside job. It was an inside job. That's a huge moment though, isn't it? It's a huge moment. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't, there's so many bottoms that are gifts in my life. That sounds like I'm saying something else, but the, the, there's so many times <laughs> that I've hit bottom yeah. that are, they're treasured experiences in my life because I have found that like, I'm, I'm so good at meeting the actual moment that the anticipatory stress of things that I've never experienced is so much worse than the things I have experienced. Yeah. Right? I mean, life is all about like not wanting things to get bad. Right. And then when things get bad, it's kind of like, it's not that bad. Yeah. I can, bad. I can deal it's with this. Stupid. I can figure this out. And that's a really exciting moment. That, yeah. that moment, the, I can figure this out The how can, you know, what can I do here and right. how bad is it? It's like checking yourself. Right. So you're, you're in the throes of Lyme and his flowers for Algernon uh, allegory, meaning you see yourself getting worse and, and, and that kind of thing where he sees himself like receding, like losing his intellect. Yeah. It was like after three months in the fog, which the only way I can describe brain fog is like being locked in a room. I mean, it literally felt like I was like, whatever's right here. Usually my consciousness was like locked in a room back here. And I was just kind of, I was watching my whole life happen through like a peephole or something. And I couldn't, if I wanted to say something, I would say I'm going to the store and it would come out store trash can. I mean, it was insane. And so by the fall, and this is, you know, there's no good energy in the world to pull from. Everyone's going through hell. Uh, I remember sitting in a bathtub and kind of like plotting my suicide, just like, okay, well, I'll give it a year. What were you thinking of doing? I was, was more concerned with like the kids. So I got to figure the kids out. I need to find a way. I need to go to like a light. I need to, you know, I can't go to libraries, but I need to find a way to make sure that my life insurance policy will like take care of that. I got to make sure that he's prepared, whatever. But these were like, 
I am someone who's kind of like pl a planner. I like to plan things. My plans never work out, but I like the, the hobby of it. And it was, you know, in a dream where you're like trying to run, but you're like, God, yeah. that was every thought process. So this was a very loose planning of, it was just something I was telling myself to feel better. Like, okay, well, I won't stay like this. And I remember thinking that this was different than the bus stop even though at this point in my life, I have found love, I have found success, I have found people that actually wanna to listen to my stupid shit, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing art, I'm being authentic, whatever. And in that moment, I thought, well, all of this is because of my mind. And something that I had at that bus stop that I don't have now is my mind. Yeah. And my mind is the reason that I found a way to get breakfast the next day. And my mind is a reason that I was usually entertaining enough that people kept That's me when around. it gets super scary because you can't even scary. say, I'm going to go to the store. Right. You're saying trash can, whatever, whatever. Right. And then I'm like, this person, you know, I, I found this amazing love. But at the time, you know, we were, we had met and then six weeks later, we're kind of living together, not, not thinking that the this thing was going to last a long time. And then here I am six months later, he doesn't even know me because I turned into a vegetable three months after we got together and he was going through his own hell. So we were just kind of, I described 2020 and a lot of 2021 as us just like we met and we were like, hey, you seem like a cool person to suffer alongside. And then we just kind of suffered adjacently. You know, we didn't really have a relationship. It's like other parallel than plays. Just every once in right. a while being like, you're gonna be all right. Right. So that was a really scary window of time. My knees had swollen so much I couldn't walk. It was just rough. And anyway, there's a long version and I don't need to tell it, but I ended up finding a doctor. This, oh, this is wild. I ended up finding a doctor. Oh, the flowers for Algernon moment was the getting better and then decline and then the decline and knowing because i knew so many people who had like permanently lost like decades of their life the advantage for me is that i already don't really trust i just don't really fuck with western medicine too much so i knew to go straight you got to find someone who's who's coloring outside of those lines and i know the people who have been dealing with chronic chronic is because they they waste 10 years trying to get a diagnosis but i was like i already know it's lyme i'm just gonna find this I did use a little a little of the old drug seeking. I never did drug seeking because I didn't do pills, but I, I understood the principle. So I used that to get antibiotics throughout the, the time. I was just, telehealth was everything. So I was just calling different telehealth. Giving different symptoms. And just saying I just got bit by a tick because they won't, they won't help you with chronic. But so I did take enough antibiotics <coughs> in that time that I think I held it off. A little bit so i'd feel great while i was on antibiotics then i would descend again and the antibiotics were wrecking my the rest of my body so anyway i find a doctor and um start treatment and ended up doing a relatively new doesn't work for most people treatment but worked fantastic for me i took antabuse wow yeah how does that even happen? Is that wild? So apparently for the resistant Lyme. That it shit works, works for everything. It works for everything. But for people who have Lyme, it causes like deep depersonalization and psychosis kind of. She had me on a very low dose. I was in like a face. How do they group. find that out? I don't know how they find this shit out. It's like naltrexone blocks opiates and it helps people not drink. Yeah. And antibuse is good for Lyme. And it, and it either really works or it like doesn't. Or but fucking Ozempic. Ozempic is curing addiction now. How do they figure out antibuse does Lyme? What is this thing with Ozempic? Because it was like first they were like, 
never I'll just bitch about the fucking pharmaceutical. I just, first they were like, we are running out of Ozempic because the diabetic people need it and now people are using it for weight loss and now they're trying to sell it for everything. Was it like, did you, was that a marketing? Yeah, it was, it was one of the, it was fine fucking, demand Jesus business. Jesus Christ. Um, so the antibuse helped you? It, it helped. It was a wild, wildly intense four months i think i was on it and it was it was fun in the beginning because it was causing like mania kind of so i was like well, this is a You're party like, yeah, gave yeah, me yeah. a lot of you know you I'm, i like speed yeah. Yeah. yeah and then um and then it turned into anxiety and i was already dealing with this this is like spring of 2021 i'm already dealing with this it's actually really unsettling to like have a public thing you know and who knows how have a public comes. illness have a public uh to to have people like what you're doing to me just felt like they're eventually not going to like what i'm doing the terrarium of spiders yeah and so it was like that was starting to hit kind of a crescendo which is like aod i think i stopped recording in i did like 12 episodes of that and i stopped recording in the summer of 2021 and then yeah there's not been much publicly since i'm still on like patreon because i I can hide. That's inviting friends over to your house. Right. <laughs> That's very different. And it's not than, doing stand up. Than playing live in the park. Right, yeah. Right. Stand up. I like it. I just don't want to. I don't. I went and did it for the first time in three years. I like literally couldn't remember my jokes. I had to listen to recordings of myself. But was that weird muscle memory feeling to hear yourself? Did you think you were funny? Yeah, it's weird. I feel like I died and came. I mean, there was there was so all my memories were wiped the vast majority of my memories were wiped. Most of my vocabulary was gone until a full year after I kicked Lyme. And then I was just a completely different person. And you know, what happened was I didn't have my mind for a long time. So I got in touch with my body and I'm really grateful for that. Cause it turns out the body has all kinds of its own wisdom. So How did you magical. get into the body? I didn't have a choice. You had to like, in order to recover, the doctor was like, this is a whole body thing. Like you have to support the body. So I had to learn how to set boundaries, which I'm not very, wasn't very good at. Like when you're sleeping, when I when don't want to, when I don't want to talk anymore, when this conversation is stressing me out, when this friendship is stressing me out. Like right. I have a, I have a, I think I used to, I had so much energy. So I would just do things I didn't want to do all the time. You had just access. a people pleaser. Right. right? This was like, nope, you got a spoonful. You want to spend it on this? You want to sit on Twitter and watch people fight and stress yourself out? And then I realized all of the ways in which I was feeling stressed that I wasn't. I can't remember the last time I was on here, but like in the Mormon and the meth head days in like the summer of 2019 was so transformative for me. You know, I... I realized I had feelings. I really had been dissociated. I think you right? came on right around then because yeah. you were talking. Dr. Drew. I went on. I got you. I got you. Listen, I think he thinks I'm nuts. Well. So Dr. Drew, I went on Dr. Drew during what I have called the duffel bag of feelings. Okay. And I was so, for, everyone thought I was high on almost every, uh, Burt Kreischer, like all these podcasts I did, people thought I was high because I, I had been crying all day because I was in a situation ship that just involves a lot of crying. And so it was always when I'm about to go do a podcast, we'd be in some big, dumb, tangled up in each other's nervous system bullshit. And then I would have been crying, my face would be swollen. But when I did Dr. Drew, I mean, I was raw. I had 40 something years worth of stuffed feelings coming to the surface. And I remember at one point he said, 
something about EMDR therapy. And then he was like, I'm not sure if you could handle that. And I'm like, oh, this is just a, this is, just <laughs> yeah. a, this is a version of me. I'm going to be a completely different person. This is just kind of how I am, but I'm in a moment. And so I think that I had all these feelings and I didn't know what to do with them. And then I slowly learned like, oh, to just process your feelings. And then I realized how much of my personality is this bravado right. that I put on to be safe. Well, to be funny, to, yeah. to control people. Like, you know yeah. how to lead them down this place and you know how to make them laugh and you know how to leave. Right. But I'm actually a very, was actually as a kid, a very sensitive, like soft person. And I took on all of these really kind of hard bravado, like personality, which I always described like as I had like a fence around me, you know, and if you do, if you got into that fence, you could do whatever you wanted because I didn't actually have the ability to say no or set boundaries or anything else. So this has all been shit I've worked through. But when your brain is shut down and your energy has the governor on it, that's like, right. You forget how you did get through it. Yeah. And like, well, I, don't, I simply don't have the resources to um, find a way to be likable. I don't, you know, liked by everyone. I don't have the resources to do things I don't want to do. I don't have the resources to, you know, perform whatever it is I've convinced myself I need to perform to stay safe. And so, huge like amazing things came out of that how you learn a new way to be you yeah when you talk about kicking lime it reminds me of when everyone talks about kicking drugs was it similar to to awaken out of it and find some sort of like i mean you're talking about this new version of yourself yeah which i'm sure is relatable to when you got off meth yeah i mean it was I feel like my life has been a series of these like huge Phoenix rising from the ashes moment. And this was a huge one. I would say second only to, to the era that I came off of meth is the only time that my life has ever, I've had a lot of pivots, a lot of pivots, but the pivot when I left meth and my entire personality changed in a very short period of time, I think I moved further into inauthenticity for a while after math, because I was terrified of myself, I was really kind of bought into this idea that there was something doing push-ups, and that, you know, it took me a long time to realize that that maybe wasn't my story. But yeah, I mean, it was, it was huge, but it was slow, because even after, like, you get rid of the lime, it's like the damage is still there, so. I thought it's supposed to always be there. How does that, how do you get rid of it? It's not been my experience. Thank God. So, but that was a fear. Well, that takes us to the day. I'm like, should I, should I fully trauma bomb on here? I think it's important because this is a, a lot of people have this Nobody experience. trauma bombs on dopey. Okay. So you're you're going down Perfect. new paths. Okay. This is yeah, good. This has never happened before. It's never happened before. What is trauma? I don't even know what the trauma bomb is. This is a rainbows and butterflies podcast. Okay. So there is that fear that it's going to come back. Right. And so that became this. Lime is doing push-ups in the park. Lime right? is doing push-ups. In the, in the, and I was terrified i think ari i was supposed to do a shows with ari shafir was coming uh and i canceled on him because i was like ah you know i still i still hadn't gotten the virus i still haven't gotten the virus and so i'm like i don't know like i don't shouldn't leave the house like i was terrified and then i got healthy enough that i got pregnant at 44 and when I get pregnant, I'm just like in bed for three months with morning, noon and night sickness. And at first I was like, well, we're not gonna do this. And then I'm like, well, I guess we decided to do it, to keep it. And so I, 
I just like left social media and was like, okay, I have to take care of my body. I have to be really careful. And then after, I don't know, like 12 weeks, I went to the uh, like ultrasound and found out the baby was gone. And I'm sorry. it's okay. It's, you know, it's, yeah. it's rough. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's a weird way to find out. And then we had to like live in this kind of like weird in between purgatory thing, right? Um, waiting for it to happen. And it was, it was like Christmas time. So I left my kids, my kids stayed with my parents and we just kind of waited. Anyway, once it happened, it was, I don't know, you can like die. I didn't know that. But so I ended up in a hospital for two days and um, lost an enormous amount of blood. It's, I don't know how gross to make this story. But make it really gross. Make it really gross. Yeah. I whatever, whatever you're comfortable with. <laughs> I apologize. It was, it, was, it was rough. It was a lot of blood. I lost a lot of blood. And um, I almost died. And then I, they were like, well, we have to do a blood transfusion. And I was like, okay, well, I'm an alien and my body doesn't like human blood. So I don't know how that's going to go. And I'm kidding, obviously, but then my body did reject. She said, I've done thousands of these. Nobody's body's ever rejected it. And then my body rejected it. And then there was like no plan. And it was my, when I went in, my hemoglobin was 15 and it was five. You can, I believe you can go into shock at seven. But you didn't go into shock. I didn't go into shock. And um, the only thing I think is I took a shit ton of herbs to get this party started. And those herbs are very protective of the heart. So the only thing I think. But so anyway, there was this window of time where I was kind of going in and out. And it I was dancing with death. And, you know, my, I had that near-death experience that started this whole consciousness thing. And there was a there was a stillness around death that I had had before Lyme my whole life because I felt like I, I danced with it. I experienced it before. And so I am okay you with were, it. You were acquainted with it. Yeah. And so then weirdly this near death miscarriage brought me back to that. And to the, I to the awakening. Yeah. To that dance with death. Cause I was kind of going in and out and I, there was a chance it was going to happen like while they were formulating a plan, you know, and I was like, oh yeah, I'm not afraid of, it was one of those things where it's like, oh yeah, that's right. I did, I did this. I'm not afraid of this. It's okay. I'm okay. It's kind of like another version of the bus station. Exactly. Exactly. It's the galactic bus station. So that strangely, it was a rough recovery. I mean, I had to be in bed for weeks after to get my like blood back up. And then obviously there's a sad and the trauma and whatever, you know, at the same time, I'm like, I'm in my mid forties, it's like, it's okay that I'm not starting the, that process that, that I'm, I was mentally like, okay with it pretty quick. I'm like, I was excited, but also I could be talked out of it. You know, you were excited because it was with your partner. Well, it was with Mark and yeah. I would love to have a me and Mark. So I did not to say I don't get sad about it. And it's the, the anniversary just passed of the, like would have been the baby's first birthday. So there is like that, but the simultaneously there is, Realism. You know, I see a toddler running around screaming and I go, yeah, I'm a little bit home free. You know, his, his daughter's four and then we're, your youngest you know, is how old is your youngest? Fucking 10. Right. So there's a part of me that's like, how oh, they grow up and then yeah. you can't make it be small. Well, but I mean, my, my youngest is five and she's a handful. Yeah. She's a handful. Yeah. So it's both. I was, I just, you know. I get it. I get right. it. I get it. I'm not trying to put a bow on this thing. But the experience of it, I'm. I'm more okay with it than not okay with it, I would well, say. But the experience of it was a gift because I came out of that 
no longer afraid of Lyme. I felt like even if that happened again, I could face it. And also, if I still had it and it was going to come back, that experience would have brought it back because anytime your immune system gets right, then to so that, that you makes lose you two feel. thirds of your blood and then you don't come out in a whatever they got, did it cause a relapse? I think they probably something do. like I, that. Yeah. I, I, I'm not the right person. One, I, I don't have brain fog like the way you've described brain fog, although it feels like it. I don't remember anything. Like, I feel like early onset Alzheimer's often. Like, when I think about your appearances on the show, I didn't remember them really. I don't remember yeah. anybody's stories, but I also hear, I mean, I hear stories over and over and over and over again. So I forget details. I remember some, but I was like, I don't think we ever heard how you became addicted to meth in the first place. I love those kinds of stories. Really? I don't think I ever said like, when's the first time you got high? I know you mentioned your parents were tweakers, but I don't think we, we heard the story at all. Wow. Okay. Well, I haven't told that story in a minute. I guess I didn't, because I think I just talked about the owl in the very first we talked, episode. And you talked about drinking your urine to get high. Yeah. And there was the Comedy Central story that you couldn't tell. Yeah. Okay. That was like the basis of our first episode. Okay. And then I made you do it all again the yeah. second time. But I never said, how did it all happen? Yeah. So, you know, I wanted to self-destruct. I had, but I, I, I didn't, I didn't want to, I didn't like hate myself or I wasn't how trying to escape feelings. 22. Were you stoner? No. So yeah, mom was a addict. Dad was an addict, but I didn't know it because he was like high functioning. And um, I think I started drinking when I was 14. First, first time I drank, first time I smoked weed. But it was like I lived with my dad. So it was like I got kicked out of the skating rink because I tried to drink um, Mad Dog or Cisco or something at the skating rink. This is now we'll see because I've lost a lot of memories. So these my first time pulling these files out. This is fun. Um, but yeah, there was a desire to alter. I was trying to find the curtain. I had a disillusionment with reality. Once I got old enough that they were like, Santa's not real. This is, you know, magic's not real. We just work and we get married and then we just live in these houses to, you know, and we put our bodies in these houses in between working. I was like, what? And it's there. I felt um, but gaslit. But that's not the way you look at the world at all. No. So and when that's, that became the world, you yeah, were, yeah. So I, so for me, altering was about finding the curtain. I just felt like we're, there's some sort of Truman Show, right? Just where's the fucking the real thing? Yeah. And so I looked in Christianity for that. That's why I did Christianity for five years. So before I was a Christian, I got saved or whatever. When did you get saved? 16. 15 the first time, and then I backslid with the pastor's son, and then I got pregnant by him and came back. When, wow. Once we I, were see, I didn't hear any of that. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I started drinking or, or and smoking weed at like 14, 15, early 15, living at my dad's house. And my mom was like a full-blown, like, shot-up meth addict at the time. So Were then, you seeing it? Yeah. Yeah, and she was like a nightmare person. So I had left there when I was 12 and went to live with my dad. And then once I decided I wanted to party and dad was too much of a buzzkill, I went back to mom. Like I went there to visit to see her for the first time in a few years. And she let me smoke weed. And I was like, you know what? It's time for us to put the past behind get us. get back together. You know, I don't care about any of that shit you did. So I got back to Portland when I was, I guess, yeah, 15 and then in the summer, so like June, I turned 15 in February. And then she, uh, yeah, it was a lot of smoke weed all summer. Did you see her just shooting up all day? 
Well, I mean, she wasn't just like shooting up in front of us, but there's, she had a weird thing one time where she like freaked out and she was out of drugs and she took my Adderall and shot it up and she had to like shoot up right here or whatever. So yeah, I mean, I saw it. I saw her shoot up, but it's not like she was, she like, they, you know, my, my stepdad was like a tax accountant. It's like they maintained weird it, illusion of like a really weird like they inherited a house from his like his great grandfather so and it seems so, like they have so we were money. in a not great neighborhood but it was like but then there was like a hole in the roof because there was no much we didn't have oil for heat half the time so we were very poor but like still Appearances living in this stuff. like house that was okay but the floor was dug up and when did they give you adderall um oh so, so the adderall well, I was in and out of the mental hospital, the adolescent mental hospital in eighth grade and ninth grade for now. I would say I'm probably on the spectrum, you know, but they didn't have any of that language. So they did say I had severe ADHD, which this is 90, early 90s. So they weren't giving girls that diagnosis. So they had no help to offer other than it wasn't Adderall, it was Ritalin. 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 And I never took it. I took it once and I was like, oh, this bums me out. And so I, and I had street value. So I sold it and, uh, or just like carried it around. And some friends did it at a sleepover and they ended up in the hospital having to drink charcoal. So then my parents didn't refill the prescription. It was a mess. It's interesting that you didn't like it when you loved speed so much. Well, I think if I would have realized like to take more, it would have been like, it would have been different, the but the way that they pitched it to me, was going to chill me out. And I'm like, I was no, always thanks. like seeking mania. Yeah. So, and then I was also just massive attention. Like I was just looking for attention, you know, which later were like, Oh, it's, that could be because nobody did anything when I got molested. But I think that's where I got to relate. And then maybe mom had me refill the prescription or something. But so summer there. And then when it comes time for the school year, she doesn't like put me into school. And I had I had gotten kicked out of ninth grade. Like I was I failed every grade always. But like I'd get, gotten in trouble at the end of ninth grade. So I was not getting passed. But I just, so I just went and registered myself in school and just lied and said I was in 10th grade. And then I just never went to classes because it occurred to me that if you never go to the first day, that recording's never going to call your house. So I would go to school and then I found a guy who would give you, uh, who would front me acid. Sucker. Uh, just, by the way, I really appreciate this story. I think this is great. I really, <laughs> I'm really glad we went down this path. So I, I did, I would just go to school but I would not go in the school. And then the principal there- well, How much acid is front of you? Just, he would just give me a hit or two, you know, and a you're couple like, times a week. You're like 14. I'm 15 at this 15, point. 15, yeah. not be in 10th school, grade. not in 10th grade, and you're about to be saved. So what happens there? So then I start running away from home. I went- Cause you don't want to deal with your dad and you don't want to deal with your well, mom. Well, so dad's in Delaware. So I'm in Portland oh, with mom. Right. Mom doesn't know I'm not going to school because I'm getting up and leaving the house in the morning and then partying all day. So, and she's partying all day. And so she's she a drug addict. She, she doesn't, doesn't really, yeah, she can't keep She has keep no track. idea what's going on. And so, ah, this is embarrassing. Like I went, I went to go beat somebody up and then I got beat up by the person I was trying to beat Why, up. Hold every on. Time Why did was, you go to beat somebody up? Because they like. This is good. This We're seeing your like, memory works. They like jumped my cousin, but it wasn't my real cousin. Just the way that like tweakers tell you that their tweakers friends kids are your cousin. So they were my mom's tweaker friends. But I grew up in the same trailer park as them when I was little. Anyway, so I was like, I'll come fuck them up. And then because I was just like big and like it was just loud. But I was soft. I'm. 
you weren't going to fuck anybody. No, and I'm like, I can't make myself be mad at someone. It's like one of those things where like, if I'm attacked maybe, but like, I can't, you can't visit harm on people and like my body won't participate in that bullshit. So I went to go like defend my cousin or whatever. And then I get there and the person is like holding their purse and they're like, please, no, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I should have just been like, all right, well, at least you apologize. But then there was all these people around. I was like, I have to fight. So anyway, I hit them. I didn't care. And then I just lay, I just laid there and they beat me up. So anyway, then I was like embarrassed. I don't know why I was, I'm not going to go home. And that's when I discovered the art of running away from home. And then I was like, oh, dude, no rules, like no rules. And this is awesome. And so uh, I would get caught like every 30 days. You're just, just on the run. I'm just on the run. Where are you going? Just, ca- are you just couch surfing. Same shit I did on meth. Just pre meth. Yeah. Just learning Teenage the art. Couch, couch surfing. Learning the art of being an interesting hang. And so, uh, but then I would get like caught because I'm just like, I'm not even going that far away from my house. And so my mom would just be like driving home from Safeway and I'm just walking down the street <laughs> and then the car. she'd bring me home. And then I'd be home for a little bit. And as soon as she, cause she's a bitch, you know, she wasn't fun to deal with. She was, uh, she, you know, would smoke weed with me, but then she was also mean. She's high, you know? So as soon as I didn't like the rules, I would just sneak back out. And I, I started getting picked up by the cops. Was it very abusive with your mom? It was when I was younger. I would say those teenage years were the beginning of like me visiting revenge on her. So no, I like- That's when the fence gets set up and she's not allowed behind the fence. Yeah, this is, uh, this is where I start to step into my power and realize your parents don't get to tell you, like nobody gets to tell you what to do. And so, yeah, I mean, I was, when I was on math, I was tortured her and she was clean by that point. And I'm, you know, was mean, but she was, she was pretty rough when I was like, you know, when I left when I was 12, she, she was, had grown quite abusive. And part of that was cause she just had these like crazy tweakers living in our house who were also abusive. So it was some dark stuff, but like by this point, she's kind of harmless cause I'm my own thing, you know, she, but she was down. Like my mom was like, you know, I was raised knowing not to trust the cops. You know, I was raised very like, streetwise. Yeah. My mom taught me a lot about that sort of stuff. And so tweaker one, you know, like the, the, the basic text of tweaker. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like, have your drugs in one purse and your stuff, your ID in a different purse, keep them on opposite sides of the house. You know, it's, it's like really the helpful. worst stuff for a 13 year old girl to learn. Probably. Yeah. But you know, I just like, I carried that, I carried that family wisdom into my next life and never caught a charge so well i guess i did by the end but (laughs) it wasn't for having my drugs in my id purse so um cops would pick me up and then they were like you get caught one more time and we're taking custody of you or whatever and then there was something where i od'd on some cough medicine or whatever i never could figure that fucking cold medicine thing out that everyone else Some liked DXM, everything whatever. i ever tried was terrible i think i might have been trying to hurt myself this time but i drowned in a mud puddle the ambulance came you drowned in a mud puddle uh-huh i think you said that way too quickly yeah that's i tend to that's do that fine. these that, are little that, asides that's fine Um, I don't remember the details of it, but they were asking me, or no, I wasn't trying to hurt myself because then they asked me if I was trying to hurt myself and I was like, I wasn't, I was trying to get high. And, but they said, I said I was trying to hurt myself. And then they asked me where I live and I said, I'm on the run, which is so stupid. Just tell them where you live, idiot. Right. And then- (laughs) You needed help. You needed help. So then I'm in the hospital and my mom comes and they're like, she, she, she said she ran away a month ago and she said, no, she was home tonight for dinner. 
which that was her having my back so that I wouldn't get in trouble. And I, I got put in the mental hospital there, which was n not nearly as fun as the one in Delaware. This was just like the hospital's adolescent mental ward. And I got put into like temporary CSD is what they called it there. CPS, basically custody. And um, I had a social worker who I named God uh, because the idea of like this stranger having say over me was so appalling that, and then I thought she had a, she was on a power trip. So I'd always be like, should we be having this meeting without God? I don't know. Let us all ask God. She fucking hated me. Um, anyway, so then I was in there for a while and then my mom showed up high to a, a meeting. Anyway, I got put in my grandma's custody. Grandma loved the church. Grandma was big on the church. And at this and point- the church can solve your problems. Sure. To grandma. Yeah. No, she loves it. And so she's taking me, but the church is in my old neighborhood. And so when I, we go to church, I go in the front door. Leave the back. Say I'm going to the youth group, go out the back. And after a long Sunday, because it was like Sunday, two services in the morning and then a service at night. And then I was like, I'm going to hang out in between. And so I actually just been on acid all day. And then um, I loved acid. And then that night I, I ended up going with the youth group to a sleepover and i i have a jesus experience it's weird it's the second time i've told this story psychedelic jesus experience might Wait, have been informed did you tell it to the first time uh, i was recording a podcast with uh we're not going to use it anyway so it's fine but i this is i had just like pulled this file out for the first time in a long time talking about christianity um because it was a real experience now what i had it with who knows but it was in that like deep seeking I didn't have language for it, but I was looking for that curtain. I was looking for something supernatural. I was looking for something more than this thing that feels like a lie, you know? And I thought I found it in that. So I was stoked. And I just became like a super irritating born again Christian for because a Because you found that that divine yep. thing yep. that you're supposed to find in religion. And you found it in religion through psychedelics, but it worked. That it worked. Yeah. I mean, I was down. I was, I had come down off the acid. It was, there was some residue there, but. It's also like, you just want it to work. You know what I mean? I like, think so. I wasn't, because they were like, they like do the slate and the spirit thing and talking in tongues and stuff. And so I was not anticipating that it was going to work. And then I was just like, you guys can pray for me. I'm at like a youth group sleepover. And I go like this. And then I open my eyes and I'm on the floor and I'm like, what the fuck? It happened. Yeah. And so I was stoked and I was really into it. And I was really into it for like years. I mean, I left for a bit because I fell in love with the pastor's kid. But once I got pregnant, then we had to get married. And then I was like, okay, cool. Now we're both going back. And uh, and then, yeah, I was really into it. But it just it just became less and less and less magic the more you Well, it's like, not, see. It's not like acid. It's not like right. aliens. It's not like like the fifth dimension. It's right. not like everything we rock, rocketed into the fourth, fifth, whatever. You know what I mean? It's like it, it's... It's got a real scope. It's got real end to end. And then there's a lot of horrible stuff in between. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was looking for this personal relationship with Christ or whatever that like, you know, I feel like I had in the beginning, but then there is, you know, there's humans and humans bring their shit into things and then there's structures and there's systems and there's rules. And I'm just like, not, I'm never looking for someone outside of me to tell me what my experience, that's not the, you know, I'm not looking for that. I'm not looking for somebody outside of me to tell me what's real or good or moral or whatever. I did hate you, that. Did you marry the pastor's son? Yeah, but it wasn't, it was a huge church. So it was like one of 10 pastors. I married his son. Yeah. And, and you guys are a married couple with a baby. Yep. 
I had my first daughter when I was 17. And, you know, she got the shit end of the stick. The 10 year olds, like, got pr- the 10 year olds. She's got a good. She's got a good. Yeah, I've done a lot of healing and shit, a lot of finding my emotions, even in the last few years. But, um, yeah, so we're married about five years. I mean, that obviously didn't end well. So I went straight from marriage, Christianity into comedy for an 18 months. How did you get into comedy? And you're and you're not using, right? Are you using? No, I'm sober. I'm sober in the church. And then he started smoking weed. So then the I. The pastor's son. Yeah. And then I we've kind of left the church at this point, but we're still together. And then I don't, I like couldn't, hit, one, I loved weed. I smoked weed every day for like 15 and into 16. The second I got pregnant, I could, I've never, I've never successfully smoked weed since then. I don't know. It changed my body chemistry or stuff. Like I take it to such an insanely bad place. I do an eight ball of meth to my jugular and hold myself together better than like, like a, a bong hit. Right. I like cannot. I take it to such a wildly bad place. So the first time I smoked it again at like 19, we watched Kingpin. That movie was Woody Harrelson. Man, when they did that thing to his hand, I was like, I am not coming back from this. That is so fucked up. Those were his dreams. And I just, the whole rest of that movie felt so dark. I mean, it might've been dark, but anyway. So now we're just like, whatever. I drink maybe a little bit, smoke a little weed. He's doing a little Coke. And then- He was or you were? I was. Okay. And then once again, just like, I was just a huge liar. And- so I had been going to open mics because he was the funniest, and to this day, one of the funniest people I've ever met in my entire life. He should have been a stand-up. And so we'd go to these open mics because I was trying to get him to do stand-up because he was fucking insanely funny. And he didn't want to get on stage. And then he stopped going. He was doing like basketball or something. So I would go to these open mics. And I was not very funny. And so one night, I've had a few too many drinks. And then I, I don't know about you, but when I drank, I was... I was already kind of a liar. Like I was one of these, like, I don't even know how to describe it. Like attention seeking liar. Like I didn't have any of my own opinions. I would just like pick up someone else's opinion. And, and then I would, t- I would tell it like it was my story, whatever. It's just one of those until my life just got too insane. I was like, Oh, I have my own stuff. So I, but when I was drunk, I would, I would lie. So I would compulsively just manufacture entire realities when I was drunk. And then the next day see people, cause I wasn't that kind of liar. And they would be like, oh, how's your, how's your uh, estate in the Hamptons? Right. And I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> so I- Would you cop to it? No. Or you'd be like, oh, it's fuck fine. No. The hedges fuck are being no. managed. That was, yeah, could not, could not admit. So I, I was drunk, I was working for some company that promoted cigarettes, you know, good, good, wholesome, work and we're at a pizza party and I was being funny, I guess. And then somebody was like, you're really funny. And I was like, well, I do stand up, which, this which is, is that was the kind of liar. Listen, I go to stand up. Right. Mm-hmm. So then but you uh, could have done it. That's yeah. basically where you're coming I mean, from. I, I, was, I was there. I it was, was there. open mic. Is it, yeah, I could have yeah, done it. There's a timeline where I did that. So I'm like, I, yeah, I do stand up or provide ESPN. And it was just like back then there was no internet. There was no fact checking. You just kind of be full of shit. It was kind of fun, you know, liberating. And, um, but I also, I said it cause I was drunk and you know, then the next, I think the next, like that was like a Friday night maybe. And then Monday, which is the night of, of this show, people were like, Oh my, we're coming to see you do stand up tonight. And I was like, are you f- 
fuck. And then, you're super woo woo. You spoke it into I wasn't, existence. Yeah, but, but you yeah, did. Yeah. No, it's like and amazing. I, me and stand up, I've been doing this with stand up. I've been trying to leave it and it comes back and gets me forever. So I was like, I was destined. So I went home and I wrote some jokes and then I got to the club and I drank uh, enough to get courage. And then I, I handed the guy the slit. At this point, I was drinking a shit ton or no. I wasn't yet. It's comedy is when I started drinking every day. So then I hand the, you know, I sign up and the guy's like, oh, I didn't know you stand up. <laughs> and then I get up and I crush. I don't remember it, but I got up and I crushed. And then afterwards, um, some guy comes up to me. And he's like, hey, we need like the token woman. This is the 90s. So they didn't hide the misogyny. We need like the token lady for the a comedy fest, the comedy competition we're doing up in Kelso, just a couple hours away. So the next night I do another open mic. And then that Friday, so my third time on stage, I do this competition and I get to the next round. The next week I do two more open mics and semifinals. The ninth time on stage, I win this comedy competition that includes paid gigs, which so now I'm a professional comedian after after I'm nine so times. I'm so upset on stage. that I didn't ask you this story before. This is I love these stories. I um The secret origin of Jessa Reed. Yeah, the secret it was bullshit. <laughs> The bullshit origin. Of I, came, I came on the, uh, the, the bullshit railroad. So yeah. So now I'm a stand-up comedian and I'm on the really. road. Really? You get the, you get the, the opportunity and you fucking do it. Yeah. Yeah. As soon as you get it, it's true. Right. Yeah. So and did you drink because nice it's scary? I drank because I was absolutely hundred percent convinced that I could not get on stage if I was not drunk. And I think, that might have been true because I think I have now I would call it nervous system dysregulation that I'm now working on for the first time in my life. But I had all of this anxiety and we didn't talk about anxiety. This is 99. We're not we're not in touch with our feelings or our nervous systems at this point. So I'm like, I have to be drunk before I get on stage. I had made and I was on the road a lot. I was on the road like two, three weeks out of the month because I had a car and then I was, you know, a fun hang and kind of slutty so it was like yeah everybody was like i would like her to be my opener i mean i was down at a party so i would hold up shows i would get there and it's like a beer and wine bar and i'm like well then hand me a pitcher and a straw because i'm not getting on that stage until i'm drunk and then i would go back and i would be sitting in these like shitty motel because these were like road gigs they weren't like clubs or anything and i would sit in these hotel rooms and this is one behind the music yeah. and whatever the other versions of that were and the i remember true hollywood story yeah i lived on that and shit. it was all the same story yeah, right yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. here's a super gifted person very talented and then they self-destructed and i identified so much with that i remember thinking like i can't wait to get to that part me too i yeah. felt exactly the I same i knew that way. was my destiny and uh, I liked that part of it. I liked being like out of control. I just like, you know, some, I think that in, in our generation, that stuff was glamorized. Well, also, I was right? such a loser. I loved being really fucked up and watching it. I might've been addicted <laughs> to being fucked up and watching behind the music, like be in a shitty hotel with heroin. Be like, Oh, Motley Crue behind the music is on. I need to watch that again. Like I, I was, was probably in. not sober watching it. Yeah. I just, I was more drawn to the self-destruction than the success. Well, to me, it seemed like that's what is needed. That's the only way they become real. That's the only way you're, actually have gone through something yeah i mean i was raised in this apartment right by middle class jewish teachers i had nothing that seemed real mm. in my life and nothing that i really 
earned. I was a fuck up. I was a terrible student. I, I only felt like I had value once I burned my whole shit up. You yeah. Know? But you came from a horrible situation <laughs> you didn't have this cushy life no teachers you had, for you, sure. had, you had earned your spot already so it's like the fact i mean it's just interesting how we all have a story and they're probably all, all very similar and how we all find our way to the same path yeah i mean i think that ultimately i i, I think a couple of things i think number one i did want to find behind that curtain i did want to well that's your mission in wake life up at this or whatever point. right and i think that now that I've known so many people who've gone through whatever this consciousness experience is, and I know people who were very successful in mainstream reality who went through it, and it seems like it's a, I f like going and leaving society and living in an underground meth world was the safest incubator for that window of time Chris where was. you're awakening it's his psychosis, you know, cause I was just surrounded by people talking to the bushes anyway. So it's like, nobody was trying to 5150 me. Nobody had any dogs in the fight. Like my family wasn't around. I just had a safe place to just kind of lose it and then rebuild it. And then I just exited that. But when's the first time somebody gives you meth? So the part that's kind of like, I think I would have found my way to meth no matter what. I swore I would never do it, but then I went on to swear I would never smoke it or shoot it up or whatever. So I think I would have found my way to it no matter what. But this, we were in Montana. And at this point, someone had taught me because I was, I was so hungover after some show six months before this that I got pulled over and failed a field sobriety test, which back then they let you fail it and go. I failed a field sobriety test from the, the drunk the night before. And so somebody was like, if you just do a one line of Coke, you will sober up and you'll have no hangover. And so after the show, I would always ask the bartenders for a line of white. That's what they called back then. And I think they probably still is, call it that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know what the kids I'm, are doing I'm these just, days. I'm just fine. Well, so this was the uh, crank days. This is like not even math yet. This is not crystal math. Do you know anything about speed not a, not enough to really act like i do so crank is kind of looks like coke so it looks like coke was if you dropped it on the it floor. wasn't crystal it wasn't in the. it wasn't crystal yet but um yeah so i asked for a line of white and that's what i got was and i did this massive rail of crank which is you know like speed. trucker speed yeah and then i was just i was up for four days but i mean i was immediately like that's it <laughs> found it I don't even know how to describe it was like i guess maybe if i'd ever taken my ritalin i would have i would have felt this feeling but it's so funny because they had given you the opportunity to, yeah, to find it to feel that but like having been feeling like you're on one frequency and the entire world is on a different frequency and then i just felt synced up for the first time in my life i felt not bored i felt not disillusioned i was just in my hotel room just like folding and unfolding towels and having the time of my life and I was able to like reach points of my mind that I could never get to before. And I was like, I am going to do this for the rest of my life. Like I immediately was like, there was no easing in whatever. And then that was it. I went back to Portland. I was already in the after hours scene there. So I already knew the people who did drugs and I was already like hanging out at the club quite a bit. So that whole group of people ended up descending into meth addiction at the same time because people realized that like, meth would make the molly last or was it molly it was tabs back then 
Uh, I keep talking like a like a a, a drug historian. You I'm are like, back but, in my day. <laughs> you are a drug historian, but we get to do that. I mean, yeah. I think that's something that you earn. Yeah. So everyone's taking ecstasy or acid there. Ecstasy, and they're and taking that. They're taking the math to extend it. Yeah, and then they all know, you know everyone just ended up tweakers through that, and then that's how I kind of had my little my little crew of tweakers. But I the last time I want to say the first time I did it was in June. And then there wasn't a ton of stand-up in the summer. And then by August, early August, I try to do some shows on just an absolute bender. And I'm in Walla Walla, Washington, where it's like they treat you like a rock star at this. I mean, I'd already done this room and it was amazing. And I trip getting onto the stage. Most of my jokes at the time were about me being overweight. I was immediately not overweight on meth. And I... So your jokes didn't work. My jokes, nobody wants to hear that. I had to learn that lesson a hundred times because I'm like, I, you know, obviously I won't joke about weight anymore now anyway because it's a different climate, but it was a big part of my life. My weight, you know, I'd gain a lot of weight and then do some ridiculous unhealthy diet and lose it. And I learned that you can only tell those jokes half of the time. Right. You can't tell them if you're skinny. Yeah, you can't. I'm like, listen, it's because I've eaten 60 pounds of hamburger in the last week because I'm on Atkins, but okay. And then I was was saying the words of the jokes, but like no inflection because I'm just like not, I don't, I'm just in outer space. And then I thought I saw like a crawdad or something on the, on the thing. And so I was like staring at it. And then I just like have this realization. I don't know how long I was staring at it, but by the time I look back at the audience, they were like, what the fuck? And then I ran off the stage crying. And then it's I locked not myself. Like drinking. No. Drinking, you're like drunk. Brave you can just autopilot. And having fun. Yeah. And it's a good time. Meth, you're staring at a, a crayfish on yeah. a stage. That's a good point. It doesn't make any sense why you can do that. I don't know if it's just because I was comfortable with drinking or what. No, but you were like where you wanted to be. Makes yeah. You, like, ah, yeah. you know, you're just some of a fucking some type <laughs> of creature up here trying to impersonate a human being. It was awful it was so bad i mean i guess i was just very visibly on drugs that the guy the owner of the club or the bar came in and he was like through the bathroom stall was like you can have your money or you can have the hotel room and i needed sleep i needed sleep bad and i was like i'll take the money because it's like i need drugs also and then i drove home i've no i mean most dangerous drive of my life i was like in the dowels which is already this horrific drive. And I remember coming in and out of consciousness and thinking that the semi was guiding me with its lights, but it was actually just flashing its lights like bitch go. And then at one point I was getting pulled over, but then the cop took off, like someone flew by and the cop took off. It was wild. I got so, I got lucky that I survived and didn't hurt anybody else. It's an absolute miracle. And then that was it. I was like, I my daughter went to live with family and I disappeared. They thought I was dead for and years. There was no more comedy. Nope. How oh, so- God. I called the guy who I had shows booked with and told him I was taking a sabbatical to write a book. I had been doing stand-up for a whole year. That was it. I was like an MC for like, I was a feature act, I guess. But um, just, I'm going to write a book. He's like, okay. And then that was it. I didn't do stand-up again until I accidentally committed to it again as a sober person. So how soon after you get off of, I mean, it's amazing story to be honest with you. Thank you. It really is. Just write a book. Yeah. How soon after you got off the, the road, did you take the needle or did you take the needle on the road? Like when do you start losing your teeth? Okay. So my teeth were already fucked. 
when I got pregnant, they started to crumble. So I had this like hereditary bad teeth thing right, going right, right, on. Right. But it's like also I had hereditary drug addict parents. So it's hard to say. But they were like, I had to have multiple pools right after she was born. So I was like, already didn't have molars. I already had an implant right here. And then I'd already had to have a filling put in between the front two before I ever did a drug, before I ever did meth. And then I snorted it for months and held out. But I was like hanging with these Ukrainians who all smoked it. And I held out for a long time. I was like, I'm never going to smoke it. And then it's like the thing where you don't have it and they have it. So you got to do it the way they do it. You smoke it. And then it's like, okay, well, now I smoke it. And then I was like, I would never shoot it. And then there was years. There was like three years from the time I started till um, I had a boyfriend who started shooting it. And then I still wasn't doing it. And then he was doing it with another girl socially shooting up together. And then I was like, well, guess what I do now? Right. And then um, my body really didn't like, like I did have really small like veins or whatever. So it was this, you know, and I went to a phase where I ate it and I put it in my butt. I actually converted a lot of people to putting in their butt. When Everybody I was seems to love putting in their butt. I actually, I started a movement um, while trying to hide that I was shooting it up. Cause like somebody saw a, a thing and you know, like a rig in the, and then I was like, oh, I've been, I use it to put in my butt. Like, just like that. And Wait, then, somebody saw what? Like a needle. Oh. And that you can like. Oh, and then you're like, I don't I just improvise in that moment. I just, just squirt yeah. in my butt. Yeah, because at that point it was very, you know, there's like this hierarchy of. Yeah, putting you it in know, your butt addicts. is way better than shooting. Yeah, putting it in your butt is totally socially it's acceptable. Shooting was like dirty. But yeah. then once you shoot it, you think everyone else is an idiot. You think you've reached enlightenment and everyone else is doing it so inefficiently. Right. Now. Your 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 world now with all this consciousness stuff, it's glimmering in all these different places though, right? Like it glimmered like when you were on acid. It probably was huge when you came to Jesus. It's probably not so big when you're drinking on stage. Where are the aliens? Where is the enlightenment when you're, you know, tweaking full on? I mean, I think what I was looking for was that reality is a reflection of our internal experience and that I don't get to control what happens in life, but I do have command over what I pay attention to and the narrative that I create around it. And that life is something magical that even in the last few years, I would frame differently because I've, I've awakened to nature and to my own body. And so I'm like, oh, we're actually just a part of this giant ecosystem. And humans in this culture, you know, I think there are definitely cultures that are not this culture that have long known this and lived this way probably before our culture came along, but are like this this thing, this noise, nickels and numbers, rat race, hamster wheel bullshit is the thing that I was like, no, this is not life to work, to work a job you hate. What? That was the stuff I was really rejecting. And now I'm like, it's like waking up to the fact that like we all collectively are a part of some sort of organism and that if everybody was just showing up as their true frequency, this thing would have this beautiful harmony, you know? We're not there yet. Well, that's my whole percept. That's my higher power. Yeah. Like that's, you know, and I try to talk about it at a meeting and I never say it like that, but what you just described is the way I look at this whole thing. You know, that's my understanding of God for yeah. me. That's the way, I, I mean, we're all this thing. And it's not just us, it's everything. Everything. How did you get to sobriety? 
Well, so the, yeah, so I started using in the summer of 99, six months later had the near-death experience and then went into this like alien school thing where, which was mostly happening in that like hypnagogic state where- when Hypnagogic? You go, hypnagogic is when you, you know that thing where you first fall asleep, men, men do this when they go into it. I guess we all do, but like I notice because I- uh, You see it. I sleep next to men, yeah. Millions of men. Um, just kidding. <laughs> It's that place in between the sleep and the full dream where you're like kind of awake, you're kind of not. And you can, a lot of times you can hear people talking or whatever. It's the hypnagogic state. But when you do math and go to sleep, you're in the hypnagogic state, at least I was, for long stretches of time. And so that is where a lot of this like aliens teaching me things about reality was taking place. And I would now say, well, I think for a long time would say, who the fuck knows if the, the aliens are just an extension of my own consciousness if they are a, an extension of the collective consciousness, if it's me in the future, if my brain just made them into aliens because I needed, you know, because I felt like an alien. And so that's the, the mythology. I've been thinking so much about the mythologies that we choose to learn from. But I spent, f so four years after that, five years after that, doing that. And then in the summer of 2004, so it's like five years in, I quit shooting up and I'm like, I'm just kind of losing, I'm starting to lose interest. But I still have this story that like, meth is why life is magic. Meth is why I can reach this consciousness. Meth is why I see things. If I stop doing meth, it's all gonna go away. So like I have to do meth forever. And there were things I hated, I started to hate about it, where I was very pro being a drug addict. Like everyone else was like, I gotta get my life together. And I'm like, everything's bullshit out there. What they're doing, you wanna get your life together so you can go work a job you hate, like it's, We've got, we're doing it. You know, we've got the good life. But then I, I start, I hated, I hated this about cigarettes too, where it's like, you have to like, it's a hamster wheel of like, I got to get the drugs and then I got to do the drugs the and then I got to go find a way to get more money. And then I got to do this thing. And then I started to realize like, oh, I'm on the same fucking hamster wheel. It just is a, instead of a mortgage, it's an eight ball, you know? And so I stopped shooting out because my body did not want me to do that. And then I, I, the only way to describe it is I like came down a lot. Were you smoking it at that Then point? I started, I think I was just eating. I was just putting in a paper towel and eating it. And then at the time in like an abusive relationship that like my relationship before that was like mutually abusive. This one you're getting like, abused. This is like front. actually abusive. And I'm mad at myself about it. Like I'm mad at myself that I got myself into the situation. And then I come up with this idea to use a fake identity. At this point, I'm not really committed. I like, I don't commit crime, I don't have teeth. So I'm like, you know. In the shadows. Yeah, I'm mostly just like either selling drugs or I'm just like around. I was just one of those people who's like around and I was entertaining. And so I just had drugs. Uh, I manifested them. I'm gonna, hold on. I don't wanna lose that. So I'm gonna start over. So my, I, I, I should try that. Cause I lose things all the time. But that's. Just That's every smart. 15 minutes, every half an hour. That's just fucking like, smart. This thing is fucking tried and true. Yeah. This is like, I had this forever. This thing I know is going to fail me. Yeah. We just, we just recorded a first episode of a new thing we're trying. And at the end of two hours, realized that. No. Quit just, after 10 just, minutes. Just do every, bit. anyway, please. I know this is good stuff. Okay, good. This is, this is good. I've been hiding. I I've hope been, I've not been I hope Are you, com you comfortable? I am comfortable. Okay. This is very nice. So okay. It's a little, a, a little unsettled at the beginning, but this has been fun. This is okay. good. Good. You're a very calming good. influence. Well, I, I, this it's is a good fucked idea. up because we don't know each other very well. And I wasn't, I did a little bit of meth in LA because I kind of think I had to. 
I was a horrible heroin addict and I had exactly the same experience. It did exactly for me what I needed. Um, I said, I don't want to work. Fuck these people. I want to stay like this. This is the good life. I mean, everything you're saying, I feel totally connected. And then I had the same kind of thing, which is I can't keep up with it. I I can't do it. I didn't have enough money. I was, I'm like doing fucking equations in my head. There's no way I could keep up with it. And heroin was crazy expensive. Yeah. It was ridiculous. I mean, like I, but I'm just saying like, it's, we have totally different lives, different substance, exactly the same experience. I love that. I love that. I, um, and it's been a long time since I was in that situation as it has been for you. So it's like, right. just to hear you describe it, I was like, wow, I fucking felt exactly the same thing. Yeah. That's why. Cause I didn't feel, I didn't find a lot of people who, who had us, who used for the same reason and then had a similar experience with it. Like I really liked it. I liked it. I loved it. I it got gave to the me room. what I needed. I was such a right. fucking neurotic, like Jewish person. I needed heroin to find my brain exactly the way you describe meth, but I needed to, to, to down, downshift. Down, yeah. I needed to downshift. I needed to, to like, it was the only way I could not care too much. Right. I needed to, to dull my sh- myself and you you needed it so that you could ascend right but it's interesting yeah it is it's so i mean it's really self-medicating when yes, you get down to it 100%. it's like what are we what are yes. we self-medicating the way the society works um so i started coming i started coming down i come up with this really stupid idea to steal an identity to get dentures because at this point it's like this the is i've already i've already broken crazy. into the dentist's office and made my own teeth until those all fell out and it's a mess. And I run that by Hold now. Hold up, though. <laughs> did I not tell any? I did not come on Dopey and tell any of these stories? No, no. What the fuck did we talk about? We talked about the owl a lot. Okay. We talked about the relationship with the Mormon guy. Okay. We talked about Chris. And we talked about how urine, meth stays in urine. The first time you came out, I think you were on for like 15, 20 minutes. Yeah. But I thought I came here and we did a whole, I guess we, we talked did. about aliens. We talked shit. about aliens. Okay. We talked about, I, I talked about Ibogaine, my Ibogaine experience where I met an alien. Oh, okay. You were very interested yeah. in that. But no, we didn't. I didn't hear about you stealing, making your own teeth. Okay. That so, sounds yeah. like it's the greatest thing I've ever heard. This is like a year or two in, there was somebody in Portland who lived next door to, I guess was abandoned uh dentist office it was really like packed full of stuff and so tweakers would like break in there and everybody else was like always looking for stuff they could sell or like you know the nitrous or whatever and i was like this is perfect i manifested this and then i got all of the what do they call like epoxy everything i thought you would need to make teeth and then i just tweaked on it and experimented with until i figured out a way to make teeth so then, cause at the time they were all just like, you know, rotten in places. And so I filled them all in and kind of sanded them down and made them look like if you were up close, it's like, what the fuck those is happening? Those aren't teeth. Yeah. But from across the room, it looked like I, you know, <laughs> was a normal human. And so I would do that, but then they would kind of eventually kind of crumble and then they would take a lot of teeth with them. So in the long run, I sped up. You lost more teeth than you gained. Yeah. And I did a lot. I've always been a DIYer. So I did a lot. I mean, a lot of self-dentistry. So I eventually, I would like. I've never heard anything like this. You know, insane. Like we do, we've done 425 episodes all about drugs, addiction and dumb shit, but no one's ever made their own teeth. I made my own teeth and then I would, when they were like not, no longer salvageable, I would sand them down and push them under the gum. And then it was like time for the next level of teeth. 
No, and then it was just like, now I don't have teeth. So by the time I, there was two, well, because what happened, this one was already an implant. This one? This one. So that, for a long time, that was like the rogue tooth. But then that came out, and then it was just a stud coming out, and then the stud eventually came out. It's a mess. Yeah. And so I did, I mean, when I finally did go get dentures, that, when they looked at the x rays, they were like, what happened here? Yeah, I just figured out a thing about how to deal with the pain, like how to move the pain to a different compartment in your mind. And I just like every single one of those teeth died and I didn't see a dentist and I was just like managing it myself and it was it was gnarly. So I wanted dentures finally. And so I'm like 27 or eight or something. And so I tell my mom I'm gonna steal an identity to do it. She's like, Jesus Christ. She calls my dad. My dad is like, tell her I will pay for the teeth. At this point, I haven't not talked to my dad in years. I mean, they thought I was dead for years at a time. And so um, he said, I'll get the tops and then you come visit me and then I'll get you the bottoms. And he wanted to like reconnect with you. Yeah. Now my dad is at this point five years in recovery, I think. Because he, I started using right after he got sober and I thought he was a real fucking buzzkill once he got sober. And so I get the teeth. I go out there to visit at Christmas time. I like miss the flight. When I get to fight, I've not been at an airport since 9-11. 9-11 happened while I was doing this thing. So I don't know that you can't come back to the gate. I don't know anything. I don't know about the security. I walk in. I realize I have a meth pipe sticking out of my bra. So I do this like slick like maneuver, maneuver it into the trash can. I turn around and they are fucking security is surrounding the trash can. I run into the bathroom. I eat all the drugs I have for the whole trip. And then had an eight-hour layover in San Francisco, just gacked with nothing, not a not a penny to my name to get a bottle of water, nothing. And then I get to Delaware and I come down, and then I'm there for two weeks. And uh, a couple things happen. I'm like laughing, which I attributed to meth. I'm smart still. Like in my head, I thought I was smart because of meth, because the school system told me I was, you know. Because not smart because I didn't want to learn. you left in ninth grade too. Yeah. But I mean, it was always like, doesn't live up to potential, which I guess is not calling me stupid. But I just was like, oh, I just well, don't like to learn about you things. You definitely didn't live up to potential. <laughs> right. I, as I heard myself say that, I was like, oh, what I heard was you're a dumb bitch. Right, but right, I guess that right. is like not what they were saying technically. Uh, well, at that point, my potential was um, whatever this was. So by the end of the trip... I say nobody nobody addresses the elephant in the room. Nobody see me in five years. I I'm here. I don't I've got now I've got these big old goofy top teeth, no bottom teeth. The top teeth are still flying out when I talk. Just a mess. A mess. I'm sleeping 16 hours and then getting up and just just real trashy. And finally at the end of the visit, I'm like, uh, this is the longest I've been sober in five years and my dad gets excited and he starts talking to me about recovery and i was like oh i didn't say i was gonna get sober i just was like just an observation and then he puts it back and then at the end he says the smartest thing you could ever say to me because at that point i had seen so much violence especially in that last like year and a half i had seen so much horrific violence i'd seen so many people become monster gob including myself just monster dissociated sociopathic goblins i mean it just got bad and i was so dissociated from that part of it if you were to say if you go back and it's horrible if you go back and it's whatever like none of those words are registered but he said if you go back and it's stale you have a home here and you then did I, say that you did say that yeah to chris 
And Chris really loved that. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I guess I thought it was weird. This I wouldn't part, have told the no, story. This part, okay. I remember well, actually. And then that's how I, I, I went home and it was stale. My boyfriend had robbed my friend, so I didn't have anywhere to go. And then I had stayed with him and he was fucking his ex-girlfriend. And I was like... This is stale. And the and the true the true story uh, of Meth P is that I then discovered Meth P and did that for like two weeks before getting clean. But the Whose P was it? It was my own P. You were just like It was I'm a gonna- theory I had been chewing on and I had tried to make it for I had been trying to make meth out of P for probably 18 months and failing, but I didn't really the the methy portion of my journey was like it was that came back from Delaware and then that was like a bottom and then I was I was back in Delaware three weeks later but that didn't it didn't it didn't flow in the story but the well. truth is the truth shall set you free right and yeah it's great to hear where the meth pee lands in the story also yeah. and again though it makes me think about consciousness and it makes me think about like spirituality. And like, I'm sure that when you did get sober, those things are like the the thing, you know, right. con- spirituality is like the thing that like when you were talking about your, your conception of God, it's, it's what I'm using as my conception of God. When you're talking about like this idea that we're all part of one thing and that when we can vibrate on that frequency, we can actually be in harmony, but people are so not themselves, we're in dissonance. Right. You know, and, and you talked about, and I don't care. It's been years since you were on the show. Nobody right. remembers That's anything. That's a good point. That's a good point. Um, you got, you didn't get disillusioned with it as much as you got bored of all the shit. Like, you know, all the, it's like a lot of shit. And I think a lot of places with 12 step, it gets really boring, you know? And, and did you go back to psychedelics? Cause I remember we were talking about that. No, I mean, that was such an excruciating uh, process. So I, I got clean and I quit cause I, I was going to bring meth to Delaware. I was going to Delaware to get away from the boyfriend and I was going to keep doing math. And then I had discovered this P thing. So I was like, Oh, I can really get, I can really get miles out of the, the meth. And then I had left, I had made arrangements with someone to send me the meth. I'm on the plane and I'm just having a moment of clarity. And I'm like, they're never going to send me the drug. Like I'm going to send money. They're going to fuck off the drugs. It's going to be frustrating. Then what am I going to do? I'm going to be clucking around the house with no buddy to get high with. And I just was like, fuck it. I'll just quit. And that was really my decision to quit. But like when I made that decision, it was, it was like, it doesn't logistically work and I just, I don't care. Like I'd gotten everything out of it that I needed to get out of it, I think. So I get to Delaware and I'm just, I'm done. And now looking back, I think, I think it was obvious I was done because there was always a sense for me that I knew that like, because my parents were recovering addicts. Like I knew not to jerk them around with this pretending to get clean. So I don't know what I don't know if I just told myself that I would use once I got, I don't know if I knew that I was not going to, if I was done and I was just telling myself, you know, Oh, I'll, I'll get, I'll get it when I'm there or whatever, just to get me on the fucking plane or what. Cause like I knew not, I knew I wasn't going to get away with that was my dad. Right. So I don't know. I get there and I'm just, I'm done, but I'm like legitimately done. And it's not even something I didn't need to go to 12 steps. I was done. Uh, in my head, I thought I would drink again, but I was, I was not, when I was on meth, I drank once maybe the whole five and a half years. I, I would do things that were 
complementary to meth, like psychedelics or club drugs or stuff, but I, I wouldn't do downers. I wouldn't do pills. I wouldn't smoke weed. I wouldn't drink. I wasn't someone who was like altered all costs. It was like, I was looking for a very specific frequency, but at this point I'm like, well, I'll drink sometime at some point, but I'm like, the come down is rough from meth. It takes weeks. I knew this. I had done it once kind of involuntarily in that time. And so it's nightmares and it's jerking like this in your sleep. And it's like, alcohol seems like a nightmare. I wouldn't want to do that. And so my dad's like taking me, my dad's like on these, like he plays pool. And so he's taking me to these bars while he's playing pool. He's just hanging out with me all the time. And he's like, is this, is this triggering for you? And I'm like, no, if I wanted to drink, I would drink. And then I'm like, oh yeah, I don't know. I people pleased a little bit because he, he was really excited to take me 12 steps. So he took me to AA meetings. I hated it. And he took me to an NA meeting. And at this point I'm, I have this social anxiety that I didn't remember from before, but maybe I always had it. And I just was uncomfortable. And then I felt really, it felt weird to be around people who hadn't seen the violence, who hadn't seen the stuff. I was like, still had a lot of PTSD, I think from all this stuff. And so that I didn't, I was like the idea of like, how am I going to have friends or whatever was kind of weird. And then he takes me to an NA meeting and it's just this guy he's sharing. He's like, you're my fucking POs being a piece of shit. Like this bitch. And I was like, Okay, like a social, you know, cool, you know, like a bridge. And so I got into 12 steps because I, it was a community and I'm young, I'm like 28, you know, I'm like, want to socialize and stuff. And so it became like my pickup high school kind of. It was like, you know, it was like drama and makeups and breakups and crying in the bathroom at the, at the. And you're accepted. Right. And you don't feel like a loser. I don't feel like a loser. Everyone's a loser together. No one's going to find out that I'm actually a monster, you know. And so it was great for that for a few years. It was my whole life for a few years. I think I was, it brought out some parts of me that are pretty ugly though, because I was like judgmental. And I, I think there were, I had doubts from the beginning that this was the right fit for me long-term because they would talk about like your addictions. I would hear people tell these stories of like trying to get clean 15, 20 times and the desperation that they felt. And I just like, I couldn't relate to any of that. But then you have all these things like leave your uniqueers at the door. You're not unique. Your things in the background doing pushups. And that part of it, I already like, I already, when I got clean, I immediately lost the spirituality from, for like two years. Like that, all those files were just like, I couldn't even access them. So I was like, I don't know. I thought I was talking to aliens or some weird shit. And then I had a lot of like, how did I get myself into that relationship? And so then I, I, I had a lot of self-doubt. I didn't trust myself. I became very like rigid and kind of like fear-based about like, dogmatic, I need to be on time right, for everything, right, 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 dogmatic. Right. And then I really bought into the kind of, you know, rigid stuff around the program. And that caused for me, it, it was disempowering long-term because I, I wasn't doing it because I didn't want to do it. For me, that was my truth. And I, and I was just, I felt locked in. And then I felt like there was no, I was such a people pleaser that there was no way for me to be like, I want to leave. you weren't your authentic self. Exactly. I wasn't being honest. I wasn't being myself. I don't know. I just, I didn't even want to get high. There was part of me. It was like, I would like to do psychedelics again one day, but now I'm locked into this clean time fucking prison. So I stayed clean for seven years. I did not do psychedelics for seven years. And I, I left the program. I stopped going to meetings after three. And then I, at seven, year, seven and a half years, I was like, I sat people down at 
dinner and was like, I did like my family. It was like, I can't keep calling myself an addict. It's not true for me. I feel like you and I had a conversation about that before, mm. like we were on the phone before I told you that Chris had died and you were like, listen, I need to tell you. Oh yeah. And I was like, all right, let's just not talk about yeah. it on the show. Cause I didn't know how to deal with it on the show. Yeah, like, I didn't, I didn't, I was terrified. I, I felt like a liar. Right, because it's like this sober podcast, yeah. world recovery podcast. I didn't know like what we're supposed to have on. I didn't want to have anyone on that was using, or or I just, I had this whole thing in my head, like there were rules. Yeah. And then I had a friend on who was using, because I, he was like the funniest guy and me and him would use and like back in the day. And like, that was half of why we did Dopey. And he wound up dying just before Chris. Oh shit. And it was like, it was fucking terrible. But now I'm way less dogmatic in what I do with Dopey because I don't want it to be some weird set of rules that doesn't really reflect the life. entirety of the experience. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So the, that journey was, um, in 2008, so I was three years sober, I moved to Portland. And that's when I stopped going to meetings because the meetings there, they fucking call on you. And by that point, I'm already doing recovery comedy. So people are just calling on me because they think I'm funny, but I'm actually shy and and don't, I'm not a You feel a like good a hypocrite if you're sharing in yeah. NA and you're, and you're not doing it. Well, at that point I was, I was, I was still in, but I didn't want to have to share all the time. And then also I feel like now I look back and say like, I felt like I had to perform some sort of addict shit when, you know, I was an addict, like I was addicted to drugs, but like a, some of the stuff I don't, I, I wasn't my experience. I know people that have that switch. I know people, so I know that's real. I wasn't one of them. It seems like I should have been one of them because I was drinking my piss, but I wasn't. And so it just, it, ha it was had all this stuff. And so I stopped going to meetings at three years because I just didn't like I would go to meetings and people knew who I was because of stand up and I and so it just wasn't I, I wasn't having an authentic meeting experience. And then for four years, I still called myself an addict and still stayed sober. And then a couple years after I stopped going to meetings, I was going to buy a hypnosis business. At one point, I was going to be a hypnotist. Can hypno you hypnotize hyp people? Hypnotherapist. I mean, yeah, I'm really rusty. It's been a long time, but I had gone to I say school, but it was like, you know, you go there on the weekends for a few months. Um. I had gotten certified as a hypnotherapist and I was about to buy this woman's business in Portland. And she said, and at this point, my whole fucking life is still circling around me being addict. I had four years clean at this point. And she goes, um, I, we're just talking about me maybe buying her business. And I go, well, I feel like there's something you should know. I'm an addict. And she goes, yeah, I can tell. You wear that like a badge. Why do you do that? And I was like, what do you mean? And she was like, why, do you, why is that your identity? And I was like, well, because I'm, because I'm an addict. And she goes, how long have you been clean? And I said, four years. And she goes, okay, so that's something you did? Right. Four years ago? Why are, Why is that your identity? Why do you think that's what you are as a person? And I was like, what the fuck? Because right. that was so aligned with my spiritual beliefs. And I chewed on that, which is very, I'm a very fast pivoter. I chewed on that because I was so afraid of being wrong for another three years, three and a half years. And finally got to the point where I'm like, it feels I'm getting congratulated every year on my clean date where it's literally like, I don't want to use. That's why I'm not using. Right. It's not. I'm not. There not are struggling. people who are fighting for their fucking lives. I'm not one of them. If I did want to use, I would. 
And so it just felt like I don't want this to be my identity. I want to know that I'm sober because I want to be sober, not that I'm afraid of losing my status. So I told my dad and some friends in like that were still in recovery that I just I no longer want to identify as an addict. And then I did mushrooms once and then and started uh, shooting them every day. And then immediately was just like shoving them into my yeah, butt. Yeah. And then my friend was like, I want to do it too. So I did it twice that summer. And then I stayed sober for another five years. I was like, I'm, I just want to be, I, I, I just like to be sober. I never ended up drinking. And then I really just started doing psychedelics again in 2018, I guess, was around the time. And meth pee had just taken off. Right. And I'm like, everyone's just assuming that I'm sober, that I'm 12 steps and sober or whatever. recovering comment. Yeah. And then I would do. What were you doing for psychedelics then? I just do like mushrooms or ass and it wasn't a ton. I really don't enjoy altering because I'm already all reality is bonkers. If you're really looking at the entirety of it, I really don't care for it. So I, but I did, I was going through a divorce. I was going through midlife crisis. I was like shaking up the energy, whatever. So it was a couple times a year, a few times a year for those few years. And um, around no that ayahu- time, no ayahuasca ceremony, no, no ayahuasca ketamine for depression. No, I mean I did ketamine back in the ninety, sure. in like ninety nine. Yeah, I yeah. got enough. No, it's just some acid, some mushrooms. I think maybe did Molly once. I guess I did do Molly once, and it was kind of fun to you know in that in that time. I didn't have the desire to use after. Um, I was very braced when I did it in twenty twelve to make sure just in case you know, but then I didn't. On Mormon and the Method, we did an episode called Not an Addict. And I agonized over doing this episode. And then I didn't want to put it out because I was terrified that people would use my experience as an excuse to right. use. Right, they'll use or they'll judge you or that you put people in danger. And that's what the, yeah. you didn't want to do more than anything. Yeah, that was my biggest fear is that I was afraid of being a hypocrite because people were assuming that I was sober and then I wasn't, you know, I'm LA sober or whatever they call it. But I'm like, so I didn't want to be a liar. No, I didn't. LA sober, it's California. California sober. And that's like drinking and I think it's drinking and smoking weed. Yeah, it's just like not doing your drug It's like not choice. doing heroin and crack. Yeah. That's California. <laughs> sober, I think. <laughs> so, yeah, I didn't want to be a liar. Not a part of California sober. Either. I didn't want to be a liar. So I can do it. I didn't want to be a liar, but then I also didn't want people to, I was so afraid of like you enabling wanna, people right. to, because I'm like, oh, I could totally see people being like, yeah, I, I knew people that were like that. Oh, I realize I don't have that. And I'm like, dog, you have the switch. I know you, you have the switch. And so, and then I also didn't want to be an asshole who's saying I don't, but you do. But it's you know? also like you had a feeling like you had an intuition and you experimented and you proved yourself right. Right. But somebody else might have an intuition, take mushrooms and then be out there. You right. don't, you don't know. I mean, yeah. it's like, I'm not like in my own and I don't need to compare or whatever, but in my experience, like I'm not afraid. I'm not like resisting using on a daily basis. You know right. what I mean? Like that's not my reality. I love being sober. I loved weed, you know what I mean? And and I have fantasies about being an old man that smokes pot, you know? And I just don't want to do, and I like psychedelics too, but I'm not going to take psychedelics because I don't like feeling speedy without feeling relaxed. So I know if I took a psychedelic, I'd want to smoke pot. Then I'd probably want to smoke pot every day. And then who knows? So right. I have this kind of fear like I don't need to test it. I don't need to fuck with it. Right. Yeah. So that and I'm happy. Yeah. Like I'm an, I'm very like I feel very 
attuned to psychedelic shit anyway also but it is like a little thing especially in this heyday of ayahuasca ceremonies and ibogaine and empower you know bettering yourself with the bufo aloe vera frog and all this shit right you know like we had a i mean i talk about this all the time we for our last opicon there's a psychedelic medicine company like that wants to sponsor DopeyCon and wants to set up like virtual oh, wow. reality ketamine at DopeyCon. And I was like, I don't think we can do it, you yeah. know? But she's like, come trip out, you'll love it. Take ketamine, you'll you'll be better. And I'm yeah. like, I'd like to be better. <laughs> you know what I mean? I would very much like to be better. But you know, I don't wanna fucking fuck with it. I've got yeah. two little kids, I've got a really good life and I, my life was terrible. I love your story and I love your experience and I love where it's landed. Um, that worked. Right. It's not necessarily. It's not. It's it not doesn't. The person proof. I did mushrooms with the second time relapsed. I'm sure and that I was like bothers freak, you. Yeah, it freaks me the fuck out. And I mean, I not sure they hadn't relapsed shortly before I'm that. Sure they did. But I just, yeah, I just didn't want to have. And I guess I'm just now realizing that, like, oh, I never did talk about this on here. But I did eventually share. I did the not an addict episode, and then soberish starts with me saying I'm not an addict, and then like two episodes later, I realize like I'm I'm a raging codependent though. But um, the, I was like I never in a hundred years would go anywhere near a speed product. So I have in my ADHD, sometimes very frustrated with ADHD, especially post Lyme, where the mind is uh, you know, difficult to deal with. I wouldn't risk even taking Adderall for ADHD. I love uppers. And so I really wouldn't ever, I won't even like, I've had family members who are addicted to math and I won't even be around them when they're on math. I won't. It's too much. Go anywhere near that. So like that substance and that experience, I was definitely addicted to. So there are, and I, I mean, I have, you know, I have great respect for what you're saying. And like the fact that, you know, it's like, it's okay to like do what you did. You know what I mean? And yeah. it's like, it's like, I, I get it though. It's such a crazy time, you know, it's life or death and the dogma that we get and the dogma that an addict gets both ways. And here you are somebody that succeeded following your own path and you don't want anyone to know. And you did succeed following your own path. Right. And that, I mean, I think that you deserve a lot of credit for that. But it was always different. Like it was, I got clean on my first shot and I had no, I never had a reservation. I never had a, I never. So it's like the, my fear is like someone who's like on the brink of using again, who truly needs abstinence in their life going, well, you know, well, like using my story. Right, right. right. Sure. And so it really truly was what it took me seven years to get honest about was I was there for socializing. I would like, if I would have, I never would have started drinking. I just, ne I the time never, cause once I let myself off the hook, I was like, I don't like it's a downer. I wanted to get high to find the curtain. I found the curtain. I don't want to get high and that's it, you know? And that's just. Well, I mean, one thing that I never liked is the idea that none of us are unique. Like, yeah. it's like, we're all unique. Yeah. Isn't that okay? Can we all be unique? Yeah. Can we all be different? Right. Like we don't have to all be the same. We can all be different and that makes us shared experience. Right. You know, I had a great, I mean, I had crazy conscience or altering psychedelic moments before I got sober, but I feel like, I don't know, like all the love shit in the recovery has been 
illuminating. And I think a lot of the conscious expanding stuff you talk about, it reminds me of stuff that I picked up in my recovery. Do you think your recovery gave you any little ammunition in your like conscience expanding shit? I mean, it's so funny now. Like when I, I catch myself all the time. I mean, I draw from everything, you know, cause I'm very active on Patreon. I, I still do like live streams. I'm not trying to sell the Patreon. Sell the Patreon. Um, how do they find, how do they, how, how do they find it's the It's just jessery.com, but it's like, it's, it's woo shit. It's what we're talking about. Consciousness we're talking about right now. I'm not, I'm on about nervous system stuff 24 seven, but it's kind of just been my live journal as for, for my last few years of like my process. But it's funny how much of it is just the tenets of recovery, man. Like the, the, that's what I'm saying. I, yeah. Can you change it? Yes or no. If no, accept it. Like, I mean, really, truly, that is the secret to everything. Everything is the secret to manifestation. You know, it's Explain accepting that for that, a sec real quick. Like, I don't even like the word manifestation because it's so like, I feel like it's tied up in all this Loaded, weird right. materialist, whatever. I want a boat. Manifest it. Yeah. I want, it's like, yeah. what a gross fucking, I mean, sure. But now it's, I'm sure people are just like, I would like to be able to afford my rent, but I do believe that reality is algorithmic according to what we pay attention to in a way that like we can't even really understand yet, that it is this reflection of what's happening inside of us. And so you can start to shape the reality you are experiencing by learning when to invest your energy and attention and when to divest it. And the more you pay attention to things you like, just like the more page you, you click on a certain thing on Instagram, it brings you more of that. And then, but more importantly is divesting. And we are conditioned to pay attention to things we don't like. So we just get brought more things we don't like. Now, is that a cosmic uh, force bringing that? I think so. I think it's, we live in some sort of toroidal field of energy in, in a way that I don't even fully comprehend yet. I think that reality is way more magic than we even understand yet. And we're, we seem to be getting there, but um, you think we're getting there though? I do. Even even with all the the, the, the hiccups in the past yes. four years that we haven't talked about. It always like. gets worse before it gets better. But the thing where you like your memory, everyone's experiencing that. I think because we are starting to live in this present moment, like magic instant kind of reality. And I think it's speeding up. And I think everyone's experiencing some version of it. And it's, you know, it's that's not to say it's fun. But that's where like the acceptance comes in, right? So like if there if reality is some sort of algorithm in which you can learn to pay attention to the things that you like, invest your intention in things that you like and divest your attention from things you don't like, and that that starts to create a reality algorithm that is is more favorable or more enjoyable to you, how do you learn how to divest? You have to learn the, the art of acceptance. And the art of acceptance is simply, can I change this? No. Can I change this person? No. Then divest from it. Right. Like whether that means. That's so, that's way harder though. It's, it's, it's so hard. It's, that's the hardest. That's the hardest. And, and, I mean, gratitude and acceptance are the hardest. They are the hardest, and but they're, they're the secrets of reality. I right. Think. I mean, I've shared this on the show before, but I'll tell you, cause what the fuck this year I went to a meeting on Perry street, like, you know, Perry street, it's like a, a very old, tiny 12 step room okay. uh, in the West village like probably from the twenties or something wow. like tin ceiling, the whole fucking thing. And there's like, there's some like weirdo, like fighting about where the air purifier is sitting in the room or something. <laughs> and then the guy sitting next to him had like 35 years and he goes, 
when I'm working a program, my life, I have two buckets. One is gratitude and one is acceptance. And if my shit doesn't go into either of those buckets, I'm not on my fucking thing. Yeah. You know, and that's what we're talking about. That's exactly, I mean, so yes. And to answer your question, yes. I felt like when I first got to the program, I was, ex- I, the 12 steps I loved. I immediately loved the 12 steps because I was like, oh, this is kind of the stuff that the aliens talked about. This is kind of the stuff that I picked up as how reality works, you know? And so I, I was, I jumped into the steps. I loved that part of it. I loved all of it. Yeah. Then it just, you know, then it's just, I just don't do anything for very long, but the aliens still in touch at all. Yeah. I, you know, I think that, is that an annoying question? No, I just, this was one of those things where I started to talk about this. And for me, it was, oh my God, here's this embarrassing thing that like uh, I am going to be brave and talk about. And then the thing that really struck me is how how we're so conditioned to look for God outside of ourselves and how we are so conditioned to look for an authority outside of ourselves that people wanted to like, well, what did the aliens say about this? What did the aliens say about this? What did the aliens say about this? And I think it was a really interesting experience that I had and I do still have communication with whatever that is. I think it's probably just my higher self. It's just, a, I think your mind is just a million different things, but it largely exists to tell me to pull my head out of my ass. Right. So AOD, Awakening OD, is a artistic insulation of me doing an impression of that voice. And almost all of those episodes are something that that, like, especially the ones about love and stuff, are like how that thing shows up. So yeah, when it shows up, sometimes in dreams, like the other night I had one, it's just like I'm in a building, it's like a school building or something, and they are aliens. Are they actual aliens, extraterrestrials, where people really wanna get in the weeds, or like, are they the Zeta Reticuli? And I'm like, I don't know. I think they're just thought form, and they show up as aliens because in my head, I always believed I was not, I didn't believe I was not from here, but I felt like an alien. So this thing showed up. But also they exist as actual aliens because every timeline exists. And if I experience them as that, that that's what they are. All this other shit's mythology. It's all mythology. Then you can get in the weeds about that. Right. Story upon story. And like, what does it mean? It means everything. Right. You know, an alien is is you talking to me. It's you hearing something from me that I heard from that dude. Right. It's all of it. It's all just consciousness. And it could also be an alien. Right. And it's sometimes helpful for me to hear things outside of myself, specifically pull my head out of my ass. Right, 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 because we can get too far up there. Right. And that's no good. Yeah, so yes, I do, but it's not very off. It's like if I get tangled up in my own bullshit, it is like it'll show up in a dream or it'll sometimes show up as, you know, like channeling, which is just like it'll come out of my mouth, but it's almost always about myself, you know, or but a lesson. Right, right, but and that's also very 12-steppy. Right. Like, it's like, that's what you hear at a meeting. Someone says, this happened, this happened. Is it God? Is it alien? Whatever. Yeah. I had a lady on the show who I called woo-woo and she got so offended. Oh, yeah. She got really- It's a derogatory term. She made me like take it out of the show. Oh, really? Yeah. And then she told me I wasn't funny. (gasps) And she told me that Wavy Gravy wouldn't think I was funny. Oh, my God. It was bad. And then later on, she like told me she loved me. And I was like, well, I'm not sure I love you anymore. You hurt my feelings. Was it because she didn't? I didn't call her woo-woo to her face. Like there was like, we had a long interview. And then afterwards I was talking to somebody. I was like, oh, that was a pretty woo-woo talk. 
she heard that she's like, "How dare you call me woo woo?" Because she didn't want to be seen as woo woo, or that she took was she, she thought we were talking was, about the derogatory. She, she thought it was demeaning, and I was like, "Well, if so, if someone called the Dalai Lama woo woo, he would laugh. He would think that was the funniest thing in well, the world." Well, it was a derogatory thing, and then I I started calling myself woo in making fun of it. And then that you seems reclaimed to be, the language. I thought I was the one reclaiming it. Like I was just like, well, it is. It's fucking weird. This is weird shit that I'm saying. I am aware of that. And then now it's like a like it's almost been like people are calling themselves that to the point that people don't even know that it was at once uh make like someone's making right. fun of you if right. you said it. So but it just kind of depends on where you're from. Like I think uh, new age people, which I don't, even though it sounds like I'm maybe new age, I don't resonate with that group of people at all which is probably just my own self-rejection, but I haven't gotten to that level of the game yet. <laughs> well, it's also, you, res, you, you resist 12-steppers and you resist new agers because like you don't want to fucking be pigeonholed. You want to be able to do what you want. Yeah, I had this relationship with 12-steppers the same as I had with Christians though, which is like those were once my people. Right. So it's like there is a, uh, can you guys still just like me even though I don't want to do this anymore type I'm of thing? Sure, I'm sure most of us can. Where, I, I, I'm a 12-step person. I still like you. Yeah. I, I very much, I loved doing those shows. Those are the best shows in the world. It made me never want to do comedy anywhere else. And I, they are they are still like, those are, these are my people, you know? I just like, did, I, I got a lot from the program and then I didn't need it. Now, can I tell you one last thing? Yes. Okay. Maybe you can help me understand this. Last night, right, I go to bed really early and crazy thunderstorms, like fucking like the loudest thunder I'd ever heard. I'm deeply asleep. I had taken like a Tylenol PM, like I'm deeply asleep because I have foot pain and I like to sleep. Anyway, that's don't judge me. Don't judge me. <laughs> um, I'm asleep in the dream and somebody wakes me up in the, in the dream and tells me that my friend and my friend is on the show very often. He was a fentanyl dealer. And he's relapsing, like in real in real life, you know. Mm. And he wakes me up. This strange man, like an old white man, whatever, wakes me up to tell me that my friend is dead at three in the morning. And I wake up out of the dream, and it's thunder loud, right? Wow. And I text my friend, and he doesn't respond to me. He still hasn't responded to me. But that there's got to be something in there, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in that thing where I just said, like, the aliens are probably an extension of myself, like, I do, I am 100% in, like, aliens, ghosts, like, all of it. I think that, I think that the physical reality is this much of reality, and then there's just so much. Stuff. I just am at, like, at this point in my life, A, like, I'm so open-handed to it being both my subconscious and the Zeta reticuli. Like, I don't, I actually don't know anything we about We don't the, know what We it don't is. know, right. but I think that dreams... We spend eight hours there. Right. We live, and we I mean, act like it's, and we have entire lives and we act like it's nothing. I think it's a huge part of the wiring under the board. Has to be. I've gotten, I've gotten massive life-changing messages from dreams. I have uh, seen things happen in dreams that then went on to happen. I have communicated with people who pass on. Yeah. I've gotten pieces of information. So, I mean, I hope your friend's okay. I do. Too. I mean, I know but he's that's using. Really it, was, interesting. It, was, it was crazy powerful. Yeah. And then the thunder was so loud. And I have weird dreams every night, and, and it they don't stick with me like that one. It just freaked me out. Um Jessa, this is amazing. This was so fun. You had a I'm good so time. I'm so glad I did this. All I right, knew good. it was going to be, 
I've had so many experiences recently with like forcing myself to try to go back to podcasting and I just wasn't ready. And I've done, I've been doing a lot of nervous system work. And uh, this, this, I was like, I was feeling the energy the entire time, checking in with my nervous system. And I was like, this feels really good. This is, I'm, I'm really glad I did this. I'm glad Me we got too. to catch up. And then try DopeyCon. Okay. Throw it out there. We'll see what the, what the Zeta Reticuli say. Yeah. We'll see what God's <laughs> will is. And, uh, and I didn't even get to talk to you about the stupid aliens in Congress, but that we'll save that oh, for another so time. Oh, there's so much. We'll save there's that for so much. Time. Thank you, Jessica. All right. Thank you. Man, I love Jessa Reed. Jessa Reed is just like the total package. She is a, a brilliant addict in recovery, a brilliant comedian. Uh, I hope, I mean, she's, she, she, when she's just a total original person, super genuine, you know, and, and she says she's going to put DopeyCon in pencil on her schedule and uh, let's hope she can make it. So fun. So fucking fun. That is what Dopey is all about. So thank you, Jessa. Uh, what did you guys think of Jessa? Mike Malak, man. Holy shit. Mike Malak might have been the most hated guest on Dopey since uh, the great Cat Marnell. You know, and I like both of them. It's funny. You guys don't hate the guests that I don't love. We also didn't ask me anything on Patreon where I talk about my least favorite shows. And I, I read all of the the Mike Malak hate off of Reddit. I didn't even read the Dopey Nation Facebook heat uh, for uh, heat and hate for Mike Malak. And I just want to give a shout out. I want to give a big shout out to Dopey Reddit. Because Dopey Reddit, listen, there's very few of them. A lot of them put me down, put the show down. But they actually seem invested in what comes out on the show. So I challenge Dopey Twitter, Dopey Facebook, I appreciate you guys having community, being involved, supposedly listening to the show. But the people at Dopey Reddit seem to actually be listening. So if you guys are listening, post about the show. Preferably not negative stuff, preferably positive stuff. But let's see if you can match the might of the of the lowly 3,000 Redditors who are, you know, making Dopey Nation proud from the Reddit world, talking about the show, which I love because I'm totally self-centered and sick. Now, we have to close out the show. Ben Anderson was on Dopey years ago, and he had started a event called a Songwriter Summit in Park City, Utah. It turned into the Park City Song Summit. He had me last year. The rest is history. And now, for the next little while, Ben and I talk about what to expect at the Park City Song Summit 2023. All right. I'm going to take two more bites of my sandwich, and I'm going to call a day. Hold on one sec. Let me make sure this is recording nicely. Oh, it is recording nicely. Uh, what do you have for a sandwich? Um, Paige made me an egg wrap on the way out the door 20 minutes ago. And since I hadn't eaten all day, she was like, you are going to take this with you and eat it in the car if you have to, but... We've got to put food in your system. So um, I'm running around like a crazy man. What's going on? It's, oh, we're two weeks out. And so, you know, 
but we're being recorded, aren't we? <laughs> well, I'm, not, I'm just we're we're just warming up here. What does Page Page right. Against the Machine put in the egg wrap? Mmm, egg, cheese, tomatoes, and and she makes eggs the way that I shared with her many many years ago. My granddaddy in Tennessee was like, "Put you a little Worcestershire in there, son." Really? And so, mm-hmm. Worcestershire so in that's the eggs. A, that's um yeah, a little Worcestershire in there as you're as you're uh, you know beating up your scrambled eggs. You know, you just put that in there before you throw it in the pan, and dude, it is golden. And then you got to use Trader Joe's um, um, garlic salt mix. Okay. Well, this is this is a bonus bonus. And uh, yeah. listen, I uh, we're recording this. It's going to be on the show this week. I'm on the phone with amazing visionary bass player are you still an attorney or are you an ex-attorney i mean i guess once an attorney always an attorney but i'm not actively practicing law in the courtroom anymore thank god ben anderson has been on the show he I, you're one of my incredible heroes ben welcome back to the show thank you so much i'm honored to be on dave you know i love you brother and um uh anything anytime we can talk wellness and fun and life and love and service you know I, i'm all about it i love it and and if anyone in the dopey nation did not know this ben anderson is the visionary and promoter organizer everything creator of the park city song summit i got to go last year i talked about it for weeks and weeks and weeks it was one of the coolest things i got to do i'm going again on September 6th, it blows my mind that I get to go to Park City and participate. Before we break down what's happening in Park City this September, why don't you tell the audience the origin of the Park City Song Summit? Yeah, so I was, uh, I'm a lifelong musician. I'm, I'm uh, just over 16 years in recovery. Um, I didn't, the, the for my for my wellness, continuing to be a mass tort trial lawyer and try cases all over the country and be gone a lot from my family, um, it was it got to the point where I needed to do something different in life. And so, the first idea was like, well, let's move to Park City and we'll be able to hike, bike, ski, golf, and just chill. Go to the gym whenever we want, eat whenever we want. And I did that for about a hot minute, like a year. And then, you know, I always look for threes in the universe or they look for me. And, um, you know, first my wife was like, you know, there's no uh, multi-day music event here, like a festival or music and arts and culture um, in Park City. And it's such a great music town. It's a Sundance town. It's a ski town. It's an Olympic town. But it doesn't, you know, doesn't really have a music event. And so... She said, "What? Well, maybe we should create one." And um, and then I was hanging out backstage with um, Anders Osborne at a show he did in Salt Lake, and we were eating dinner from his favorite spot in Salt Lake. And um, and he was like, "You know, a perfect place to do, you know, sort of a wellness retreat plus some music would be Park City in the mountains here." 
Um, so that was the second of the three. And then uh, a buddy of mine here locally introduced me to a fellow by the name of Aaron Benward, who's an amazing singer, songwriter, producer, um, film producer, director. And we met up at my recording studio at my house and started to vibe out. And um, so that was where the first event, which was called the Songwriter Festival back in 19. And um, it was great. You know, we had oh, about four dozen artists, mainly a singer-songwriter format. But we also had, you know, Harold Owens and, um, and Paul Williams. They talked about Paul's at the time, 29 years of uh, recovery and things. We really added a, a strong wellness component and um, worked with other 501c3s that were, um, you know, focused on live music touring and the struggles that a lot of those musicians have. And so that was a, a good thing. We had, you know, Paul Worley, long-term sobriety, he's produced, I don't know, he, he's responsible for about 15 million albums that have been sold out there. He came, he talked. So it was, I would say, sort of a beta test of what we could do. And then 2020 came around and the world went upside down. And I connected with Jay Sweet from Newport Folk and, and Jazz. And we talked a lot about, like, how we could really amplify wellness and what I like to call a larger umbrella of inclusivity, right? It's like there's a lot of people that feel isolated or they feel marginalized or they don't feel comfortable in their own skin or they don't know how to connect. They don't know how to reach out and seek help, whatever that may be. Maybe it's because their struggles by being in the LGBTQIA plus community or BIPOC communities. Maybe it's because they're struggling because – they're a female and certain doors are closed to them in certain genres or they feel like it is, or maybe it's someone with mental health, trauma issues and or substance issues. Right? So it was like, how could we cast the net wide to have really cool conversations about this stuff? Um, that is, that is really, really important and critical. And in a lot of cases, life or death. Right. Um, and also bring a sweet element of music to it. And so Jay and I started to vibe out and uh, connected with some other folks in that regard. And um, had to cancel again in 2021. But so last year when we finally got to hold what I would call was our really our inaugural Park City Song Summit. We rebranded it, renamed it, repurposed and focused it. And it's really a music and wellness event that we wanted to do something um, uh, my wife, Paige, and I, with our quote-unquote retirement, which was a massive pivot into, um, uh, and I know your audience is probably tired of hearing that word, me too, unfortunately it just comes to mind, that we were going to change our chapter next into service um, around you know, sobriety slash recovery slash mental wellness, but also opportunity, social justice, and inclusivity in all its forms. And we were going to have some really good fun times doing it. So what came out of it was Park City Song Summit 2022 and now this year 23. And it's really cool because we are, we're different, man. In, the, in a new day and age where people are finally starting to really focus in on mental health uh, trauma, generational trauma, family of origin trauma, um, and that talking about anxiety, having anxiety or depression or being bipolar and stuff is, it's not completely uh, non-taboo, still stigmatized more than it should be, but it's m at least moving in the right direction. And if we could be in some small way a strong voice for that, 
then that's that's service for us and we feel like there's there's a great need for it in the live music touring industry and having these conversations to because the audiences of those amazing artists and all of the unsung heroes behind the artists helping to pull together those live shows audiences you know by and large they have the exact same issues and they hear it in the songwriting they hear it in the stories behind their song at song summit and they also get to have these intimate podcasts and uh, and uh, live panel discussions and things to where people can connect in a safe space, intimate setting and go, ah, yeah, man, that's me. Uh, he wrote that song about me or she's going through the same totally. problems I am. Totally. You know? And, and uh, so it, I, wor- it works, man. It, somehow it works, Dave. I'm realizing, like, I've been around the Park City Song Summit in a way, shape, or form since the it was the Songwriters Festival because that's when you came on Dopey to talk about the Songwriters Festival. And uh, and I kind of like somehow got myself into your head to invite me to the real thing and uh, and to be at the Park City Song Summit last year. It's like you can say all that stuff, but when you actually go there, it's 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 really cool. Like people are actually connected and the musicians are so happy to be amongst the people. Like I was so, it was so cool for me to be a part of it and like fucking talk to people in a real way. Even if someone's not an addict, they have their own shit that they want to talk about. And and it just acknowledges people for where they are. And, and it was such a special thing last year. Wouldn't you say I made the Park City Song Summit so much more special, Ben? Wouldn't you say I you added put us a lot on the map? We were a ring without a diamond. We were we were a bride a, a bride without a groom. We I, were. I mean, you get you gave the yen to my yang, baby. I gave a little color, and and I want to give a big shout out to your <laughs> wife, Paige. She's wonderful. Paige is fucking cruising the festival, cruising the the summit, talking to everybody, making everybody feel welcome. Um, she is an incredible person, Ben. I just want to give a shout she out to is, Paige. She's my hero, man. And she has supported me through all the years of being a trial lawyer all over the country and, and um, uh, you know, ra- helping raise my two kids and uh, that she's the stepmom for um, and to step in there when they were young and to also be a very busy you know, she was the uh, senior IP counsel for North America for for Electrolux brands worldwide. So a, a twenty billion dollar company, just that little thing on the side. So she's a patent lawyer, corporate lawyer, super mom, great wife, uh, killer friend, and is really involved in the community. and And she puts up with my shit, and that's a lot, Dave. No, uh, I, we, I, the, I think that's the, that is a lot, and, and she is also just like a warm and genuine person. And she was very cool to me. So let's, let's talk park city song summit, 2023, Ben, what do you want the folks in the dopey nation to know? Well, it's, it's different than anything you will have ever attended. Um, it is not just a festival. It's that's why we don't even use the name. So if you're looking for something that's way different, um, uh, there's nothing wrong with a festival. If 50,000 people in a hot field um, crushing beers and eating molly and with the music kind of on in the background and then some people are into it, some are not, if that's your vibe, no problem. I go to those sometimes too with without crushing beers and eating molly. Um, 
But if you really want something that is um, a more intimate thing, uh, a smaller event where there's a huge focus not only on wellness but also the power of song, um, the healing power of music and how it's a universal language and that we are all really much, uh, pretty much the same people. We want to love and be loved. We want to understand and be understood. And somewhere where the barriers are dropped and you have these wonderful morning wellness sessions where you can do yoga, meditation, sound baths, guided hikes through the beautiful mountains of Park City, and killer recovery hangs with the, the old yellow wharf rat balloons like we used to see at dead shows back in the day. Um, and you want to be around a lot of people who are very heart forward, who are looking to, to be open enough, open-minded enough to learn more about others and themselves. This is probably your type of event. If you, even if you don't like to do yoga and meditation uh, or recovery hangs or whatnot, these panel discussions, these, we call them labs Mm -hmm. are really something that even OG, uh, you know, long, um, long-standing members of the music industry, and some of them who would say, "I'm the most jaded motherfucker out there," but I'm going to tell you what: this is different. This was I, and they leave those tents impacted, different, changed, because they learned something. So you, you might see tears, and then you might see tears of joy, and tears of sorrow, and then you know, belly rolling laughter. But people really sitting there um, and absorbing what you cannot get anywhere else, I would say, because after you've connected with these artists, you go and you hear them play at night. And through, through that process, learning more about who they are, their story, their challenges, their journey, their inspirations, we get inspired, we get changed, and we learn more. So it's kind of a schedule of wellness in the morning, great panel discussions in the afternoon and killer music at night. And so we're, we're doing the 50th anniversary of hip hop celebration. So Grandmaster Flash, Chuck D, um, and, uh, you know, Daryl run DMC McDaniels, they'll be here and they'll be doing panel discussions and, um, demonstrations of their process. And then they'll, and then they'll play, you know, uh, you'll get to see them. Uh, I mean, Chuck D and DMC put on quite a show, so if you like fight the power and uh, and uh, you know hearing um, uh, walk this way uh, <laughs> by DMC, you're gonna love that. But then we're also it's uh, and Bobby Ben. Ben, be I'm I'm running with, that yeah. crazy talk. I'm running. I'm moderating that talk. So I'm 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 all juiced up in the world of hip hop. I've I've really I'm dialed in. I'm a hundred percent. You will. I'm ready, Ben. They're gonna have the you greatest. You told me what. You told me you would knock it out of the park and no one would be more prepared for it. Plus, I remember when we were we saw each other at New Orleans Jazz Fest this past year and you were like, instead of going to see, I think it was like Robert Plant and Allison Krauss on one stage and it was like Santana on another stage, you were like, I'll tell you how badass hip-hop I am, okay? I'm going to see, and who was it? Wu-Tang. Wu-Tang Clan, you're like, that's how committed I am to hip-hop. 
And sure enough, my wife and I, half an hour later, we're walking along and she's looking at some jewelry at some of the really cool booths that are right next to that stage. And we look up on the big screen, I mean a massive screen, and there's fucking Dave rocking out and singing the words, to, to knowing the, every word to the song. And I was like, Paige, check it out. He wouldn't bullshit this. <laughs> That's so funny. It's like a Seinfeld episode. It's perfect. I told you that later. You're like, Oh God, I'm embarrassed. Did I look okay? And I was like, dude, you looked awesome. You looked like a New Yorker who knew his shit. It was great. Well, I'm excited. Bobby Weir is playing fucking Bobby and the Wolf Brothers. Uh, and the Wolf Pack. He's and got, the Wolf you know, Pack. Barry Sless and, and uh, some horns and, uh, you know, Comenti on keys. It's full on and it's their 40th anniversary this September. So, yeah, in about three weeks when they're playing, it's uh, two weeks when they're playing. It's the 40th anniversary of the dead playing uh, Park West in September of 83. That's crazy. So it's super cool that they're going to the exact same energy vortex when it was just a little village with some wooden shacks up there. And now it's, you know, 40 years on and here's Bobby still rocking it out. So that's going to be fun. And Celise opens up that night. She is a powerhouse, yeah. as you well know. Yeah, I saw her last year. It was amazing. Amazing. And Daniel Ponder is opening up at the amphitheater before the 50th anniversary hip hop the night before. Danielle, if no one's seen her, oh, get ready to have your socks blown off. Her and Solis are amazing. And then, um, you know, the wellness activities go on each day. Saturday's really cool. We got uh, what Saturday we start off with biscuits and jam, right? So being an old country boy from Tennessee, I want to make sure we had biscuits and gravy and grits somewhere in here. Yes. And so. In the village, we'll have, um, you know, you can go in and, um, I don't know, tickets are like 30 bucks or something, but you get unlimited biscuits, gravy, eggs, grits, bacon, da-da-da, with some great music in the background. Four of our amazing singer-songwriters will be telling stories and playing in the background. And then the next one will be Devin Gilfillian playing some songs off his new album. We go from that, um, and then we go right into... The Stand Together Music Lab, who are Stand Together Music, are our partners with the Phoenix to try to support a million people in recovery. Yeah, that's called One Million Strong. So they'll be they'll be talking to DMC and Anders and Britney Spencer, um, and uh, Harold Owens will be doing that lab. I'm so Love happy Harold. Harold is joining. Yeah, us. yeah, great. yeah. I mean, what a what an amazing human, another hero of mine and yours. I know. Totally. Um, and he'll be. He'll be interviewing them about, you know, uh, destigmatizing mental health, addiction, what it's like, the, the, the rigors of touring on the road. And, and just as importantly, if not more importantly, what tools do they have in their toolbox? And what, have, what, when, what, what techniques have they honed over the years to handle the stress of being on the road, the right record tour, right record tour cycle that I often talk about? And, uh, and then after that, it's um, Grandmaster Flash doing his um, – he's going to be talking about the birth of a culture, meaning hip-hop, and how he, you know, was the founder or the pioneer, I, I should say, behind the dual turntablism. Sick turntablism, uh, absolutely, absolutely. Right? And I'm then we're doing an artist art auction, which will all go to our new charity, the More Than Music Foundation, nice. which exists to support – uh, wellness and labs and activations and sponsorships for kids to be able to come and not only perform but also be in the audience and be inspired by what they see and hear and feel. Um, so that artist art auction is sick. It's going to be dope. And and after that, you got uh, at the amphitheater, Modest Yahoo, 
And then after Modest Yahoo, Simafunk from uh, Havana, Cuba with the Havana Funk Experience with these kids we're bringing in from these music students from Havana, these music students from the Trombone Shorty Foundation. Yeah. They've performed with each other down in Cuba and in New Orleans together. So we're going to bring them. They'll do second lines throughout the weekend and they'll perform a little bit with Simafunk. And then Have Saturday you seen night, ben, the closer. Ben, did you see Simafunk yeah. yet? Oh, yeah, dude. I saw his first performance at, uh, in the United States uh, at a club, and that was at Tipitina's in New Orleans, right. uh, I don't know, four or five years ago. And I, when we saw him, Paige and I were like, oh, he's going to blow up the world. And yeah, uh, crazy, crazy, and, crazy. And then crazy. I you know, got to know his manager, and then we went. I was down in Havana in January with him and Shorty and Galactic and um, – Shorty's Foundation brought down um, uh, a number of new instruments for the kids at the Havana Music School and Killer. went into the schools and they all performed together. Dude, at one point we were in a room, there were 75 uh, kids and adults, let's call them all musicians uh, and or students of music, which we all are. And everything from like a bass guitar and a wind chime to a, a baby grand piano to kettle drums to every horn and wind instrument you can imagine. And they were all playing. It was Galactic and Shorty's group and um, Simafunk's group and all of these kids in this room where we were just like tears coming down. They were playing with their new instruments and things. And then we spilled out into the courtyard. It was beautiful, man. It was amazing. And there was this moment where there's this mural of Castro and he's looking down and, and the wall is cracked across his across him uh, across the mural painting and it's up above all these kids dancing and making music and american kids and cuban kids playing together and so much joy right and then his face just kind of looking down it was um there was a lot in that in that vignette uh, that Killer. moment and uh, it was then that I was like, this has got to come to Park City Song Summit. Yeah. It's just this cross-cultural thing and better understanding our neighbors to the south there. Um, so that's going to be great. I got to tell you, Anders Osborne, a dear friend of mine and yours, also in long-term recovery, he's playing with Ivan Neville, also long-term recovery, and um, and Eric Krasno and Tony Hall and uh, the great Raymond Weber on drums and Brad Walker and the Horn Stars from New Orleans. Um, and uh, Nega Santos, she's an amazing Brazilian uh, percussionist, um, and and they're going to play, and I know they're going to have some special guests sitting in with them, and that's how we're closing out. So it's like Modest Yahoo, Simafunk, and all of the Havana Funk kids, and then this super group. That's all at the amphitheater Saturday after this long day of beautiful labs and things like that. So, yeah, if, you, if you're looking for a different type of event, dopey listeners – and there's a strong undercurrent of love, service, give back, better understanding, connection through community, and um, a place where you feel safe with tons, I'm talking tons of non-alcoholic options. I hate it, Dave, You uh, when you, you go to one of these events and there's 40 kinds of wine and beer and every kind of liquor under the sun, white, brown, you know, purple. And then, you know, folks like us are like, could, could a brother get something that doesn't have alcohol? In it? Yes, sure. We have water, Diet Coke, and Coke. Right. Like, okay. I, you know, that's time that shit changes, man. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'll die on this hill if I have to of more wellness for our live 
touring uh, music community and more safe space and more alternatives for people like us who spent plenty of years, you know, um, doing powders and pills and and uh, every kind of drink under the sun and waking up wondering where we were and what we did and then going right back after it. Great. I, I need I. I gladly hung up those, well, reluctantly at first, but uh, after a while, realized how glad I was that I hung up those cleats and, um, you know, providing options for people like us. They're like, come on, man, give me some, some craft mocktails done. Give me something out of a spout that's bubbly and it, and it tastes better than just, a, a, you know, a, a regular soda done. Will we have regular soda? Sure. That's your appetite. But like we're going to have a little truck that's got spouts on the side that has non-alcoholic beverages. We've got Ayurvedic uh, handcrafted mocktails from my friends Mac and Milani they'll be doing. Ayurvedic handcrafted well. mocktails. Now you're talking. Yeah, brother. You know, get, get your, get your, uh, you know, your, your various sutras on and we got something for you. Um, and the yoga and meditation is going to be led and it's just going to be a beautiful way for people if they want to start their day with that and then roll right into maybe a recovery hang and, uh, you know, get their day centered. But, you know, we've got those in a couple of different times during the day. We also, for people that need a little boost, there's, um, especially for our artists, um, you know, IVs and, um, and oxygen and things, cause we are at 8,000 feet. Um, yeah, we, we just try to. We try to meet people's needs. I will tell you something super cool, and that is that um, Big Steve Parrish, Jerry Garcia's longtime sure. um, guitar tech, right hand man, you name it. He, you know, does the Big Steve Hour on um, Sirius XM, um, Grateful Dead Channel Twenty Three, and um, um, I'm going to be on his show uh, this week, and uh, he's coming, and he's going to broadcast live. The Big Steve Hour from Song Summit. Killer. And he's going to be interviewing heads and artists. And he's got his buddy, George, who plays Dead Tunes. And he's going to be telling stories. And uh, he's going to be activated right in the forum area, right next to Jay Blakesburg, the iconic photographer. Uh, rock photographer. Yeah. Steeped in Grateful Dead photography, of course. And he's, he's had this um, exhibit uh, up in San Fran at the Hate Street um, Art Gallery that it's called Between the Dark and Lights, uh, 1965 to 1995, Grateful Dead. And we are converting that into these big, beautiful panels. And so, shoot, even the public can just come. And um, if you have a lab pass, he'll be doing doing walking tours, talking about the photography and the stories behind them and his journey uh, that he's been on. And that'll be set up right next to Big Steve. So, you know me, man. I'm an old deadhead, and anybody that knows me had to know that sooner or later, with an event that I that I booked and run, that that we would have a, a nice strong element of the, the the beautiful legacy and community of the Grateful Dead. For um, sure. But hey, man, we got something for everybody. We got a songwriter stage, and um, we have uh, one of our one of our songwriting stages has. Um, um, songwriting with soldiers and veterans who use songwriting and, and, and songwriting circles and that kind of connection and community through the power of music um, to help heal them from whether that's PTSD or just um, whatever trauma they've been in through their military service. Um, and then there's, you know, Hall of Fame singer songwriters that will be here that will be honoring and highlighting and they'll be performing and telling their stories. 
And then, you know, a number of our songwriters in recovery. And so they're very open as they do these songwriting circles to talk about their life and, you know, what their journey has been like and, um, and then to play some good music. So, yeah, that's, there's some country there. There's some pop there. There's some rock and roll there. And just that one stage as, you know, for 45 bucks, you can go from noon until 930 at night and, and see a lot of great music. And then, you know, the, the, the 50th anniversary hip hop show at the amphitheater is a $15 minimum, minimum donation. And the, the donation, all the proceeds go to the more than music foundation, Can our I? wellness um, and healing foundation uh, for, for Thursday night and for Saturday night for the modest Yahoo, Sima Funk and uh, Krasno, Anders Osborne, Ivan Neville supergroup show only 15 bucks for that kind of music. And that's, uh, you know, underwritten um, by our new foundation, and they are, you know, it's just a, you know, you can give more than 15 if you want. It's all going to go to the charity, but we wanted to make that very, very uh, accessible from a price point level to all our communities. And um, and then, you know, we have free music all day long in the, in the Canyons Village from the stage for our local singer-songwriters who are fucking amazing humans great songwriters and they're going to be playing throughout the day thursday friday and saturday so even if you hadn't bought a ticket to anything and you just want to come up and hang out and be on the lawn and uh and see what's going on and see the jay blakesburg exhibit and all of the other activations you don't have to spend a penny other than whatever getting on your e-bike and coming up there um and dude we haven't even talked about the cool late night shows on main street so for the night owls, um, uh, after the amphitheater shows on Thursday and Friday, you can go to Main Street. And on Thursday night, it's uh, Eric Krasno's new project called King Canyon, opening up for the Black Opry Review, a collection of amazing artists um, that do country music, crossover, folk music. It's, it's an amazing uh, review, right? And meaning a lot of different artists performing, including Reese Palmer and the Latinx band making movies with Enrique Chi. And so great lineup for Thursday night there. And then um, Friday night at OP Rockwell is the Stevie Wonder tribute. Yeah, now, I can't Are you ready? That. Yeah. Let's hear hear the artists. Here are the artists at the Stevie Wonder tribute because I just added a couple. So here's who you would see. Solis. Her amazing bass player and um, you know music director Solomon Dorsey. Um, you will see Joy Alatacoon. You will see Ruby Amonfu, Brittany Spencer, um, Sima Funk, Devin Gilfillian, Brad Walker's horn section. Killer. Um, Josh Boylock, a great keyboard player for um, for for uh, Devin Gilfillian's band, who's played with everybody under the sun, um, and it and you know, uh, Paul Janaway of St. Paul and the Broken Bones. I mean, this is getting ridiculous. There's like 15 different artists who will be performing, and um, and also Jeremy Most, who is a great. Um, uh, he's done. Um, production work guitar work etc and doesn't play out a lot and so he's gonna come and he'll be doing um you know playing the guitar so you're it is going to be a funky cool as shit night uh honoring the 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 power of stevie wonders uh music catalog and his contributions to the american canon of music right and and there's a lab that day called uh you know 
songs Stevie in the Wonder, key of life. Yeah. Of the- I'm yeah, so excited. Yeah. I'm so excited. I cannot wait. I'm so excited to see you and see everybody there. And Dopey Nation, if you're considering coming, it will be a fucking sick, incredible time. So please come. And Ben, I know you're so fucking busy with uh, Park City Song Summit. I never got to invite you formally. to. I think I did invite you formally to DopeyCon. But I'm going to invite you formally again right now. DopeyCon is October 7th in Manhattan. You should come. All right. I appreciate the invite, man. And I do. At the top of this show, you said to me, um, hey, do you remember I first met you before the songwriter? I had totally forgotten that. And you said then, like, all right, I get an invite next year to come to this thing because I can't come this year. And I did, but we had to cancel. And then I invited you the next year and we had to cancel. And I invited you the next year and we had it and you came and I invited you this year. So, uh, you know, that was meant to happen, man. I don't believe in coincidences. So the universe has winded our backs for our our joint journey together. And uh, I do appreciate the invite. I will do everything I can. I will probably go into hiding um, right after Song Summit because I – I have three seconds a day for uh, self-care, <laughs> and I, I need to build in a little more, which is why I'm actually staying at our official lodging partner, the Pendry Park City, right in Canyons Village, where, all, where you're staying, all the artists are staying and whatnot. I'm staying there. Well, and you know my son, Benjamin, who is my number, you know, he's my ride or die uh, wingman during yeah. the event. He and I are just going to stay there, man, so that... I can wake up and go out and do some yoga meditation, a sound bath, a recovery hang, and then get my day going. Um, so, uh, ironically, my self-care is really going to kind of start at the event. At least at least that's my program. It's my story. And ben, to it. ben, you know that if you need anything, you know I'm there. I'm a shoulder to cry on. I'm a voice of reason. I'm a, I'm a sober fellow. I, I was right there with you last year. When things went bad, I was right there for you. When things went good, I was Dude, cheering you on. You're like uh, just a huge uh, touchstone rock for me that I knew that at any point in time, either I found you more more frequently, though, you found me and just knew. And you'd be like, how you doing, bro? You need a hug? Let's breathe for a minute. It's all going to be good. What's going on? And uh to have you and others like that in my life is a truly a blessing. And um, I'm just so filled with gratitude because the more you tell people you're on a journey, the more people who are on that journey with you feel like they can reach out to you and you can reach out to them. And that connection, especially in the middle of, you know, I felt like we were in the, uh, you know, one of the opening scenes of, you know, um, mortars going off everywhere and yeah. Duval walking through, you know, and saying, you know, <laughs> doesn't like the smell yes. of napalm, right? Yes. Would you um, would you and, say would you say that I was like a big Jewish Jiminy Cricket for you at uh, Park City Song <laughs> Summit? Well, I didn't know you were Jewish, much less a cricket. So there okay. you go. You'd say yes, no. that's say, how okay. I'll say. <laughs> You'll say yes. Very good. Well, you were amazing, and John Bucati, you know, is oh, there, yeah. and John and I know each other's uh, journey, and he would find me and be like, "Dude, you doing okay?" So to have like these pillars that are uh, of of recovery, who are also just as crazy as fuck as I am, to know that I'm. 
I need, in need or I might be in need. Yeah, you were stalwart, my man. And so, well, dude, you know, that, that's why you get invited back every year because well, I need you. <laughs> I appreciate it. And I want to say something else, though, that the Park City Song Summit has been so good to Dopey because you've been on John. John Bucati is like one of my friends now. Like I talk to him just about every week and I'd met him at Park City. He's been on the show. Fucking DMC came on the show because of you it was one of our best shows uh i got connected with the phoenix because of you so i just i'm incredibly grateful for you and the park city song summit and anything i can ever do to to assist or make it better i'm so happy to do it as one of my old sponsors used to say iron sharpens iron and um and also want people out there in dopey nation know this at least from where i sit I think there's many, many roads um, uh, of recovery. I don't think there's any one. I don't think it might be for somebody, but it's in, in incredibly individual. And just like the word went from God to higher power, and higher power could mean a lot of different things sure. uh, yes. within this 12-step program. But I think there's many programs out there, um, and and it's – individualized it's personalized you know whether it's prayer meditation yoga whatever that may be um we are very i'm very very liberal minded well liberal minded in general but very liberal minded and open to um and accepting of um different types of recovery and there because there's everybody has a different source of the need for recovery and i would argue everybody's in recovery from something, every person walking this planet, whether they know it or not. Um, and it's just that some it's risen to the point of affecting their relationships so bad that they either surrender and they say, you know, I, I can't take the pain level anymore and they seek help or they don't and either their lives end or they don't get better or whatever, but we're all different. We all come to it um, with our own baggage and there may be a different path for everyone. So, I don't begrudge anybody and I don't judge anyone that if they are truly on their journey to live in their best life and, um, and some of their demons or all of their demons that you hope are in the rear view mirror, they're either riding on the back bumper or they're so far back in the dust you can't see them. If you're moving in a positive direction and you are leading with love and you are really seeking to be of service in your own way, um, and that might just be self-care. Right. I think that there's a lot of different things that we can all be, quote unquote, in recovery from and that there's a lot of different paths up to the top of the mountain. And um, uh, and that top of the mountain for me is you get up there and you see another mountain. You want to climb that. So don't think that when you come here, it's all about sobriety. It's not. It's not all about um, mental health. It's not all about creating more stages for women, creating more stages for people in the communities of color and creating more stages for people in our gay and queer community. But you would believe that there is a strong undercurrent of all of those things because that is my mission. That's my goal. That's why I, I created this and that's why I exist. That's what I, why I put my feet on the floor every morning. So don't think that it's there's going to be people who are drinking and partying. Great. There's going to be people that aren't. Great. There's going to be people in line for tequila. Fabulous. Have at it. There's going to be people on the line for, you know, Ayurvedic handcrafted mocktails. There's going to be folks in the recovery space. There's going to be people who are still in bed because they stayed out on Main Street till 2 a.m. 
you know, that's the way this world is. And so that's what song, Park City Song Summit reflects is we try to be more reflective and representative of our society and of our world. And um, through these safe space discussions and through leading, hopefully with love and connection and mindfulness, um, hey, maybe we move the human experience forward just a little bit each year. And if that's the case and people can be impacted and take that back to their homes, their jobs, their lives, dang, man, what a wonderful world this would be. So if one person gets impacted out of the thousands and thousands coming, good on you. And I know that that's for me, that's a success. Right on, Ben. I'm so excited for it. It's coming in two weeks. Dopey Nation, if you're anywhere near Utah on September 6th through the 10th, right? 6th through the 10th, 7th through the 10th, please come. We're going to be there. It's going to be incredible. And thank you, Ben, for everything. And thank you for coming in. Thank you. Should we tell them to go to parkcitysongsummit.com Definitely. for more information? Yeah, go to parkcitysongsummit.com. So fucking stupid. Go to parkcitysongsummit.com. <laughs> Thank you, Ben. I hope some dopey folks are out there that would blow my brains out of my head. And I cannot wait yeah, to see you. Yeah, man. And, and we're going to probably have some yellow balloon pens or yellow ribbon pens for anybody that wants them so that we can you can recognize other people. And, you know, if you've got a dopey pen or a dopey, like if somebody sees my water bottle, they see dopey all over it. Come up and say something, man. Right I would lo- we love our, we love Dave and we love our dopey nation. So come join us at Park City Songs. I'm, like, I'm so honored, Dave, and so appreciate you, man. Um, good on you. Thanks, Ben. Have a good one, man. You too. Peace. So this is the longest dopey in a long time, but we had to get as much Park City Song Summit in as we can. Please come. Please, please come. I wanted to get Ben to put me into the songwriter's circle, but they weren't having that shit. Will I finally get to make a formal amend to Bob Weir at the Park City Song Summit? Will I get Steve Parrish, Big Steve Parrish, to come back on the show? Will I be able to get Chuck D to do a formal dopey interview? More will be revealed If anyone is struggling in the Dopey Nation and needs to reach out, please do. If you need to go to treatment, let us know. If you need Narcan, let us know. Fentanyl test strips, let us know. Quick last-minute shout-out to Cormac. Big shout-out to Austin, who gave us all of our fentanyl test strips and Narcan. Shout-out to all the Facebook admins. I don't know if I was too nasty to you guys last week. Shout-out to Stephanie Roberts for all of her good works. Shout-out to Katie B., Shout out to everybody out there. Shout out to Nat X and Recovery in the Middle Ages. I don't know if I show Nat X enough love. He is so helpful, and he puts up with me on a weekly basis. So if you're looking for another great recovery podcast, check out Recovery in the Middle Ages. Nat will be back on Dopey sometime soon. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this ridiculously long Dopey episode. Stay strong and fucking toodles for Chris. I want to take a walk around the world. I wonder would it do me any good. Until I get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. But I want to be good so bad. Wanna be so good, so bad, so bad. I wanna be good, so bad. Bad desires, all I ever had. 
And I want to take a ride up in the sky Watch this airplane just pass me by And I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive But I want to be good so bad Want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And my shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand Shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand they pay it any mind When I leave this busted city far behind I'll take the high road however far it winds Because peace and love are very, very, very hard to find And I wanna be good so bad Wanna be good so bad, so bad I wanna be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had Damn it, all these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had And these suckers make me mad And I want to call my dad And it's all I ever had 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 And these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And I want to call my dad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had